I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PML. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? Are we going legal on this? I like football. I like football season all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL podcast, Steve Palazzola, Sam Monson. We're live here on YouTube. It's a whole different start time here, Sam. Tuesday morning, 9 a.m., special post-Christmas edition here, week 16 review. Different day, different start time. Yeah, so uh, be ready. We're going to do the same thing next week. So instead of coming to you uh, New Year's Day, we're going to come in uh, the second, a week from today, right at this time, 9 a.m. next Tuesday. So be ready. That'll be your week 17 review. But now... Hope everybody had a great Christmas. Did you have a good Christmas? Yeah, it was pretty good. You? Excellent. Yeah, it was good. It was Excellent. good. There Kids go. had a great time. It was a lot of fun. A lot of fun was had. It's all the banter we need. Yeah. Done. Now we're now into the games because right. we got 16 games to review and they all started. Ready? Here we go. Week 16 NFL re- review. All the games started on Christmas Eve Eve on Saturday night. Well, they started on Thursday night, but 15 games to review, right? Did you do Saints Rams? Yeah. On Friday? Great. Yeah, yeah. Definitely did that. Bengals Steelers. Uh, December 23rd, Saturday afternoon, Steelers win 34-11. to 11. Wow, the Steelers get out, of, uh, they get out of the fog with Rudolph. That's the last pun. That's mm. the end of it. Um, Mason Rudolph with the big stat line, 17 of 27 for 290, two touchdowns. It started with an 86-yard touchdown to George Pickens. It was really just a little quick slant that he took to the house. So the stats will look nice. Mm. But look, the Steelers played much better. Defense made a ton of big plays and uh jake browning kind of uh regressed back into the first start of jake browning which was again the against steelers. the steelers yeah jake browning has basically been an all pro except against the steelers where he's looked like jake browning it's actually been yeah. fascinating like two games against pittsburgh he's looked like you can't start this guy this was never going to work and then every other game he's looked amazing um yeah this was jake browning coming back down to earth in terms of turnover the plays and then those resulting in turnovers i felt like he'd been riding that luck for a little bit the last couple of weeks um he'd been treading this very fine line between was that terribly ill-advised and lucky or really good you know where you yeah. sort of float the ball in the general direction of a closing window and if it makes it in time you have to be kind of like okay fair enough he got it there. For the record, I had been 
mentally giving him credit for that. Yeah. Good I'm, anticipation, good ball location. I kind of had as well, but there was this lingering feeling that those were a little lucky for a while. And maybe that was going to stop happening for a bit. And this game, it all swung back against him. He just put the ball in harm's way an absolute ton. Got punished for it. Um, the Steelers' defense, though, I think, is actually kind of the biggest story here because you look at who they were starting. I mean, they were down because of Casey's suspension now for the year. They were down four safeties. So both starters, both backups. So they were consequently starting Patrick Peterson, an old cornerback at safety, and um, who was the other guy they just brought in off the street? Eric Rowe. He's like, yeah, he's a safety that's played in the NFL for a long time. Let's get him in. <laughs> get him in there. Right. So like, And then the linebackers as well were another collection of people that like, you know, don't generally play a lot. Miles Jack, fresh off his retirement, and the couch is back in action playing. And somehow they stitched this thing together and it was working. And working well. It's like this shouldn't work. Like it shouldn't be possible for this collection of personnel to play at a high level. Isn't that the Mike Tomlin magic though? I mean, isn't that the story? Look, I know they were in the middle of a three-game losing streak, and it looked like they were about to blow the season. But uh, And we had predicted maybe the last couple of weeks they would get out of that because that's the magic of Mike Tomlin, right, is when they're back against the, is, is against the wall in Pittsburgh where it looks like the personnel just doesn't match. They, they come out and play a game like this. That has been the reason why Mike Tomlin, I think, has never had that losing record, and now we'll, you know, we got two more weeks here to, uh, to save that thing. He needs to lose them both in order yeah. to get the losing record. Yeah, so, um, but that, that's, it's, it's fascinating because in Pittsburgh, people want Mike Tomlin out. They probably feel like there's a, there's a cap, there's a ceiling to Mike Tomlin. There were people in Pittsburgh media who were upset that George Pickens was even playing football mm. this week after his lack of effort well, that's from a run-blocking standpoint. Right? And, uh, and Pickens goes and has a monster game, almost 200 yards receiving, including that 86-yarder. Yeah, so that becomes the other story is fresh off the game. So it, it was funny because, you know, Pickens had come out and said, ah, oh, the people complaining that I wasn't, you know, that I was, my effort was bad or that I wasn't trying to get hurt, they don't play football. Um, and then, number one, most of the people that are in the media – that did play football. We've played. I mean, we've gone through our resumes. We've played right. played football. Even independent of us. You know, oh, oh, sorry. There were former players that were like, no, you should you should be blocking. That's disgraceful effort. Um, and, and Jalen Warren, the guy that he didn't block for, came out during the week and said, I mean, I had a block for him. You know, that, that... And then you get a game like this where there's a play and Jalen Warren ends up absolutely decleating Jermaine Pratt uh, on a block to literally prove his point. Yeah. Like, he canes the linebacker, takes him off his feet, buries him so that uh, Calvin Austin can run in for a touchdown, literally putting on film his point that he would block for his teammate, and that way a touchdown lies. Um, so you've got that happening. And then at the same time, George Pickens is like, well, here's the reason you don't, like, it doesn't matter that I didn't block because I can go for 195 and two touchdowns just by being a receiver. Uh, so... Everybody kind of proved their point in that game. Yeah, a lot of points proven. So what does this mean going forward? I think a lot of today needs to be high-level high narrative stuff, right? High-level discussion about the game. Not necessarily narrative. High-level discussion about the game and what it means going forward. Uh, Bengals and Steelers are both now 8-7. and seven. Steelers have the tiebreaker with the sweep over the Bengals. This, um, the, the great thing, the fun thing about 
these games at the end of the year is how high leverage they are. Um, you're talking about 60, 70% win, uh, playoff probability swings at times for certain teams. I mean, this was a massive game. Um, technically, the Steelers are out of the playoff picture right now because there are four teams at eight and seven. They're the third of those four teams at eight and seven. The Colts, who have the tiebreaker, and the Texans, who have the tiebreaker, head to head over the Steelers, are both eight and seven above the Steelers at the moment. But four and one in the division for Pittsburgh. And so their playoff hopes are still alive um, at the number nine seed at the moment. And again, for Cincinnati, they have the Chiefs next week, and then they have the 10-win Browns in week 18. So it's going to be a challenge for Cincinnati, um, who are now 0-5 in the division mm. in the AFC North this year. That's going to probably come back to bite the Bengals. 0-5 in the division, 8-2 and elsewhere. Yeah, they timed their losses badly in terms of, uh, terms of tiebreakers and, and those kinds of things. Yeah, not great. So uh, that's I've had I got no more use for this game. Good. You got that one guy that thinks that's the best. One player. guy liked it, so yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep rolling with it. Right at the death. Perfect. We got we got 14 games to go. But first, as a parent, you've had to learn so many new skills to provide for your family. How to do copious amounts of laundry, meal plan for even the pickiest eater, and now how to protect your family's financial future. Fabric by Gerber Life provides an easy one-stop shop for your family's financial needs, offering high-quality term life insurance policies plus other financial solutions in one easy online hub. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in just minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You can go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. So join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash pffnfl. That's meetfabric.com slash pffnfl. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash pffnfl. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. All right, the Saturday night game, uh, Buffalo Bills 24, Los Angeles Chargers 22, Bills uh, survive a bit of a scare here against the Chargers. They were double-digit favorites. Chargers had the interim head coach bump that we GIF. always like to talk about. The GIF bump. GIF. GIF or GIF. No, it's GIF. Um, Chargers got up 10-0, but the Bill and, – and then, even in the fourth quarter, Chargers took the lead late, man. They took the lead to go up 22-21 to with a field goal with about 5.30 left, but the Bills came back, drove 13 plays for 64 yards, kicked the game-winning field goal – to win the game 24-22. We could say that the Bills survive, but they're also one of the hottest teams in the NFL, kind of getting back <laughs> on track. And there's still a world, because of the Dolphins' schedule and the head-to-head matchup in Week 18, there's still a world where the Bills can win the AFC East. Yeah, and they now do control their playoff destiny, right? Like, if they win out, they're definitely yes. in, um, which is um, the biggest thing. And even if they lose one, I think there's still – I mean, it'll be close. There's a lot of – because that was, I mean, heading into this game, that was their big concern is, hey, we're on this run. We're actually winning games now. And, you know, before that Chargers game, we looked amazing. And we might not even make the playoffs because we've dug ourselves a deep enough hole that we need help. Now they don't even need any help. If they just keep winning games, they're in and become the team that nobody is going to want to face. Because, I mean, aside from anything else, the entire AFC is chaos. Um, yeah, like, I mean, the Chargers got that got a, a legitimate bump. I mean, maybe the biggest indictment of Brandon Staley so far is that Giff comes in and runs his own defense significantly better than he was and doing the things that this defense was supposed to be doing, like just playing soft zone 
and making life difficult and keeping stuff underneath them. Like, it was better with GIF at the helm than it was with Brandon Staley calling the plays. Remember, Brandon Staley getting so, like, you know, in his fields about everyone keeping asking him that. Yeah. Hey, you're going to be giving up play calling duties this week. I will always be calling the plays. Stop asking. Well, this is why they were asking. You were doing a bad job of it. It was not. It was not working whatsoever. Um, Easton Sticks, second NFL start, played a lot better than he did on the uh, Thursday night than the previous week Thursday night game against the Raiders when they got smoked. Um, you, again, this I say this every week, right? You get the the games where the underdog gets up early, and it goes one of two ways, right? The the favorite, you know, the longer the game goes, the favorite proves why they're the favorite, or the underdog. It's like, all right, it's getting they're pesky, they're remaining pesky. They're still pesky into the fourth quarter. Well, it felt like the Bills, that they get up 21 to 19, and they're going to pull away here. And, you know, it's, it's Buffalo. They're a better team than the Chargers. They're double-digit favorites. Mm. But James Cook puts the ball on the turf for the second time in this game with about five, no, seven minutes left in the fourth quarter. And that was what led to the Chargers' uh, go-ahead field goal. So the Bills, man, you talk about high-leverage plays, and like you said, coming into the game, how much was on the line here for Buffalo with their playoff aspirations. They almost fumbled it away. Um, to the point where it's 22 to 21, and um, I'm a big fan of when a guy fumbles, you don't you know bench him for eternity like a lot of coaches do. James Cook like kept James getting the ball. Cook's first game. What's that? James, like James Cook's first game. I forgot. I yeah, think I forget it, that they did. Be, yeah, I he, think in this game they harked back to it. It was like James Cook fumbled on his very first carry in the NFL as a pro, and then they sat him down for the rest of the game. Yeah. Like, well, that's enough of that. Like, dude, come on. They went back, so they went back to him in this one. And so when they were on their game-winning drive, it was interesting because I'm sitting there watching, like, just because you fumble twice doesn't mean you're going <laughs> to have a third one. But you know it's in their head because you, you, like, the defense gets that little – they're a little, you know, jacked up. Like, well, hey, man, think, this dude's been yeah. fumbling, you know? Like you would think. And he's, you know, two-handing it. and Two fumbles in, both sides are acutely aware that that guy has fumbled twice, yeah. right? Now, which does that – which does that enhance? Does it enhance the guy's like double hand security? I'm never fumbling this thing for the rest of my life. Or is it the defense who are all now going for the ball? Like, which does it actually power more with that awareness? It might be a mental thing too, because there was another one where you could tell Cook was like, yeah, I know, you know, he's worried, you're worried about his grip, and um, it was to the point where there was a that very there was a very close play where Josh Allen throws to Khalil Shakir, and uh, there's I don't think there's ever been a closer play in the NFL. Where he gets touched. Oh, there was. It was a play, which was the, uh, it was the Bengals Steelers game, I think, right? When was it Yoshivas? Um, his hand and foot literally touched one out of bounds, one inbounds in the same frame. At the same time. Like yeah. they couldn't, like it was the same frame. So I don't know what frame rate they're using when they do those super slow mo things, but if it's 60 frames a second, like, that should be impossible to have the same frame put two completely other extremes of your body down at the exact same frame. Okay, so that one was uh, just as close, we'll say, <laughs> as this Khalil Shakir play, um, where Shakir's knee was just barely on the turf as he got touched. Right. And then he broke away to score a touchdown, and they brought it back. And it was, and a lot of people were like, oh, the Chargers... This was at the point where the Bills could have just run out the clock, kicked the game-winning field goal... But I was of the mind, I wonder if the Bills just wanted the touchdown because they, you know, they didn't want the fumble opportunities either. Just give me the touchdown. We'll go play defense and try to stop a game-winning touchdown drive here from the Chargers. Didn't matter, though. Shakir was touchdown. Mm -hmm. um, they, they run the clock. They kick the field goal with about 30 seconds left, and then the, um, 
the Chargers, I mean, I don't know if this was a Staley thing. They had a, a nice little um, lateral play designed. Pitchy, pitchy, woo-woo. They looked like they were practicing. They may not have, might not have been practicing defense this year with Staley, but they were practicing this. Maybe Giff's got a rugby background. Yeah. I'm sure Giff didn't spend his first week making sure that he installed the best <laughs> end, of, end of game play. <laughs> it had a shot. Ever. It had a shot, but for the forward pass at the end, that's a yeah, problem. Yeah, you can't throw it forward. No. Um, okay, so again, what does it all mean? Buffalo's now 9-6. and six. Um, It's an interesting one because the Dolphins are going to the Ravens this week they go to baltimore mm-hmm. um that's gonna the the dolphins look great and everything but the, you know they have the ravens and the bills and i think buffalo they could still win a they could still be a wild card team but it's kind of like you're gonna win the division or not like you're gonna be a two seed or you're you might be you know a six or seven with a lot of help um so buffalo technically right now is the six seed would go to Kansas City if the playoffs started today. But I don't know if that's even a likely matchup with the way this whole thing shakes out at the end. So um, huge win for the Bills. They needed it and uh, survive 24-22. Chargers fall to 5-10. and 10. Very impressive uh, game generally from Ed Oliver, but also on that final drive for the Chargers. You yes. know, needed to come back. Ed Oliver absolutely whooped a guy get a, to get a key sack. Like, that's what Ed Oliver – a is supposed to do but needs to do as well like if they're going to be at their best you need him showing up in obvious pass situations and winning one-on-ones that was a good one good drop in needed that needed that little addition there because yeah oliver had a good game Hmm. Um, he's also another one of those defensive tackles who might be you know like really starting to get better you know have a have an impact more in years four and five than they did earlier in his career so all right that's the saturday night games let's go to easy Christmas Eve, Sunday at one. Mm-hmm. Where do we want to start here? Well, Tyler's in the booth. Let's. Go. He's yelling at me. He's mm-hmm. yelling. Mm-hmm. Cleveland Browns, thirty-six. Houston Texans, twenty-two. Whoo! Now, this was impressive. I know the Texans were dealing with uh, QBs two and three, with Davis Mills and uh, Case Keenum. Mm. Two and three. It's important. Two and three. Yeah. yeah. They decided to play them both. Yeah, and I say they. PFF Bobby decided, presumably, or D'Amico to, to play them both. Yeah, they were. I mean, Bobby was in the decision. Yeah, Mills and Keenum, the two QB system. You would hope <laughs> didn't work great for Houston. Cleveland's defense um, doing their thing. Their pass rush absolutely dominant, but really domination from Joe Flacco and Amari Cooper. Mm. Unbelievable. Joe Flacco and Amari Cooper game. Flacco finishes with 368 yards and three touchdowns. And Amari Cooper with 11 catches for 265. Started early, hit him with a deep ball. Then there's a 75-yarder in there. There's Flacco throwing the ball along the sideline while in the grasp. With I, Yeah, that was kind of crazy. Flacco hasn't made – you mentioned coming into the game, throw for throw, is Flacco playing great? Not necessarily. But the high-end stuff that Flacco's brought to the table the last three or four weeks – I honestly don't think we've seen that from him in about 10 years. The this, high-end Flacco stuff. This was a phenomenal game. I this mean, was great from start to finish from Flacco. I'm just saying. This has to have been his best game for 90-plus P- uh, passing grade, I believe. Um, very impless- impressive by Joe Flacco. And again, the um, the makeshift offensive line of the Texans just could not handle uh, Zadarius Smith, Miles Garrett, and company on Cleveland's D-line. Uh, this actually, there's an outside chance this is the best game Joe Flacco's ever had. 
No, he's had some 90 I mean, pluses. I'm just saying, I'm back to 2015 and haven't come up with a better game yet. You're just gonna. I am now. You have seven I'm, more years to go. Well, now that it now that it's occurred to me. No, here we go. There you go. Hit it. 2014. This is Joe Flacco's best game since 2014, where he had early, two, early in the year, first two, six weeks, two 93 grades, one against Tampa Bay and one against uh, San Diego, as was. There you go. Um, the Gary Kubiak year in Baltimore, I believe that was. And neither of those games, by the way, were as ah this the, the Bucks one was was as impressive statistically. Uh, but yeah, Flacco was insane in this game. Like that that was as good pretty much as he's ever played. Was as good as Amari Cooper has ever played. That was the game that like Amari Cooper's entire college reel looks like that, where he's just yeah. destroying people for a the entire game, but b through a massive like high volume as well. Like they. Went to him all the time. He won in a variety of different ways. He was constantly wrecking people down the sideline. And there have been, like, he's been good in the NFL, but there's always been this slight feeling that his NFL career has never quite been as good as his college career looked like it was going to be. Uh, but this was that game where you're like, damn. I mean, that was, like, his, one of those bombs was a, wasn't quite the standard Joe Flacco underthrown, like I'm looking for the pass interference call, although he never is. Uh, but it was in that realm, you know? Yeah. And Cooper just went up over a guy and absolutely destroyed him, took the ball away from him, whoever that was, 37 for uh, the Texans. Yeah, I can't even believe, man. Um, the other thing to add to how impressive it was. D'Angelo Ross, that was. Of course. Um, how, how impressive this was. Browns had a pass blocking grade of 46.7. And we've talked about how they're there to talk about QBs two and three for Houston, where it uh, tackles four and five here mm -hmm. for the Browns. That didn't go great. Right. Um, so the pass blocking wasn't necessarily good. Flacco's making these plays under pressure and everything. And again, I want to reiterate, I think like the, the last time he was a starter with Denver, it was like, I don't think his arm was that great. Like it didn't look that great. Now it feels like the zip's bad. I mean, he's like, well, rest. He's on like three years rest, mm -hmm. you know? The arms, he's got the zip, he's got... He, I mean... He's putting the ball into tighter windows with smooth velocity and accuracy, and it's really impressive. As an older gentleman yourself... Yeah. You'll know that when you hit that age, recovery time is Recovery lengthened. is important. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's extended. You can't bounce back the way you used to in your youth, yeah. right? You might so, need a year off to get the arm fresh. I'm saying. You just need some time to get everything back physically. Poor old D'Angelo Ross, by the way. One target in the game, <laughs> one catch, 75 yards at a touchdown. That's a rough passer rating for, uh, for D'Angelo Ross. Uh, four official big-time – official. It's an official stat mm. per PFF. My, my stat. Four official big-time throws for Joe Flacco. What a fascinating game football is, right? We, we're going to talk in, in about three and a half hours. We're going to talk about Patrick Mahomes and his struggles on Christmas. You have Patrick Mahomes, you know, inability to complete a pass beyond the line of scrimmage, and you have Joe Flacco fresh off the couch yeah. leading a 10-win Browns team and far more productive than the guy that we always, I mean, you know, that we think is the best quarterback in the league. That's just the, the nature of football if, and the ebbs and flows of an NFL football season. I mean, if you just looked at the list of, of quarterbacks that played football this week, it would be insane. <laughs> and then categorize them into good or bad. I mean, on the good end of the spectrum, Joe Flacco played well, Bailey Zappi played well, and yet Patrick Mahomes had one of the worst games of any, anybody in the season. Uh, I mean, yeah, this week made no sense at all. Um, Charlie Heck made his second start of the season Charlie for the Heck. Texans. Played in right tackle, 15 pass block grade. Not trying to pick on, trying to pick on Charlie here, but didn't help. Um, Sedarius Smith. They they put Miles Garrett over him a bunch. Sedarius Smith. 
it was rough. Um, the Texans' offensive line was way worse than even the Browns' offensive line, who I mentioned had their struggles. Um, so the once again, the Browns' pass uh, pass rush just dominant, man. And if you, it's funny if you look at Miles Garrett's wins, I think it's the second straight week he's got like six in a row under five minutes in the fourth quarter, where it's just must pass must pass situations, and Miles Garrett just literally literally doesn't get blocked yeah, because you're talking about most of the time those guys win. You know, like if if a defensive end wins one out of four reps, it's good. Hmm. And he's winning like five out of six and six out of seven. Um, that's just the nature of Miles Garrett, but also the Browns pass rush and just how dominant they can be. 13 pressures Charlie Heck gave up. Yeah, it was rough. That's not great. Um, two interceptions by Case Keenum. We've got a batted pass and him getting hit while throwing. So yeah. I think when you look at the Browns defense this year, um, they've been aggressive on the back end, playing a lot of tight man coverage, but it in the pass rush – like how impactful is a pass rush debate? Like these were two interceptions that were directly attributed to the pass rush by the Browns, and it shows just how dominant they've been this year. For the second time in a, in, a, in this season, the Texans have been involved in a game in which one of the teams lost their kicker early and couldn't kick and had to go for two every time. Yeah. Um, this time they were on the other side of it. They The first time it happened to them, and they had to play the entire game that way. This time uh, Dustin Hopkins, right, uh, wrecked his hammy trying to stop a – Kick return touchdown. <laughs> That's got to suck. Uh, so anyway, then, then the Browns can't kick anymore. So they had to have – and they, they brought in DTR as like the designated two-point quarterback. Yes. So Flacco would get them – It's a nice little change the, of pace. Yeah, Flacco would get them to the touchdown, and then you bring in the guy that can run so that even if the play goes to hell, you can extend it for a bit and try and, you know, just get the two yards on the ground with the quarterback. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't actually check overall what the – like were they net – to the good or to the bad with the forced decisions that not kicking because i know the texans were way up when that happened to them succeeds like, fails okay succeeds yeah succeeds okay oh no uh, no they were uh, two for three sorry well that's still because i read the texans one okay that's still good two for three but then but you also need to factor in um the tur- the turn downs right the fourth downs where they go for it instead of kicking a field goal because they can't anyway the point being when it happened to houston earlier in the season like they were net way up from being forced to go for the fourth downs and the two-point conversions um I'll, I'll check at some point whether the browns were but you know on the back of having uh, coach kelly in talking about never kicking never going for it in uh, fourth down always going for two all those kinds of things it'll be interesting to see if like every time it's forced on nfl teams they're actually more productive. Yeah. It makes you, you know, makes you pull out the good two-point plays, you know. There's there's a lot to it. The fourth down aggressiveness. Um, I, either way, it just makes it more volatile. So, again, what does this mean? Browns go to 10 wins. Currently the number five seed. They're, they're a game ahead of Buffalo for that last, or for the, for the top wild card spot. Um, so the Browns look like they're in control of the number five seed, and the ability to play the AFC South winner, which is, you know, completely wide open, rough weekend. If you're an AFC South fan, as people have said, oh. if you're rooting for the AFC South, if you've Bad got week. the, forget the shield cap, the AFC South cap every Sunday, you're like, come on, Jags, Texans, Colts, Titans, let's go. It's a rough weekend for you. Do divisions have their own logos? Is there an, like an they AFC should. South logo? I would buy all eight and just rotate them. <laughs> forget the shield. Because I know, the, like, obviously the AFC and the NFC have their own logo. But do the divisions? They should. They absolutely should. And we'll make it like college, where you don't root for a team, you just root for a conference. Mm. I used to be an Alabama fan. Now I'm just 
SEC, man. Straight just means more. Just rooting for the SEC. Um, so, Browns with their 10 wins. The Texans in that AFC South, how hard could it be? They fall to 8-7 and seven with the other two teams atop, atop the division. So, the Texans, again, on the outside looking in at the moment, at the 8 seed, but they're all 8-7. and seven. Jags, Colts, and Texans, and then, of course, the Titans. 8-7 and seven the is the new 7-6. and six. It's the new 7-6 and because we're two weeks later mm. from where we were. Um, so that's it for that game. Got no more use for it. Um, all right, let's do more AFC South stuff. Okay. Seattle Seahawks 20, Tennessee Titans 17. Uh, a lot of back and forth here in the fourth quarter. We know um, Will Levis was un- unable to make the start. Ryan Tannehill comes in. Not a great game for Ryan Tannehill. Uh, but Seattle, man... In, in, the, in a stretch of six games with a lot of drama here. A lot of drama in Seattle. Drew Locke with the game winner on Monday night, and they come back six days later. Geno Smith with two fourth-quarter comebacks. First, a touchdown to DK Metcalf, and then they um, a touchdown to Colby Parkinson mm. to win it with about a minute left on Just third like a straight, and five. Straight jump ball. <laughs> which was the stand- – Parkinson's used to that. That was the Stanford offense for years, is you get a whole bunch of six, seven, six, eight guys, and you throw jump balls to them. You just literally go post up. Yeah, go post or, up. Um, play power forward. Who was the the, the failed second round? Sega Whiteside. There JJ. you go. Yeah, yeah. He. But, but I think Parkinson. He may have been right after JJ. But there was a point where those guys were like all recruited. They're all six six plus, and they would just be like run run four. Uh, well, JJ is legitimately. I've never seen. I've never seen a red like he didn't run routes in the red zone. He yeah. literally just posted up in the end zone and said, "Hit me." Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, the fourth quarter was nuts generally, right? You've got this pretty low-scoring game. It was 10-6 to 6, uh, Tennessee going into the fourth. The, uh, the Seahawks go 96 yards. That finish with the Geno Smith to DK Metcalf, the one-handed touchdown that got ruled a touchdown properly. Mm-hmm. The Titans come back with a 15-play, 75-yard drive to take the lead with 325 left to go up 17-13. And then the Seahawks come back. 14 plays, 75 yards for their game winner with about a minute left. And that was all she wrote. And ten, so Seattle goes to 8-7. and seven. And the drama of these last two weeks put them uh, right back in the mix. Currently the number seven seed tied with the Rams in the NFC. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the back end of this game was very fun. The, that's where kind of all the, the entertainment was. Uh, the, the Seattle taking the lead, Tennessee trying to come back and get a score late on. They end up getting tackled in bounds and basically the clock runs out, uh, not enough time. Um, I thought the Titans' run game was kind of back. You know, they've been dealing with a bad offensive line all season long. Um, in some games, that's meant that there has simply been no ability to run the ball. But Derrick Henry looked better. Tashi Spears looks so good when he's carrying the ball. His just lateral ability to cut is nuts. Like he's able to full speed take a the hard cut and just jump laterally like a yard in either direction at at an insane speed. It just makes him so difficult to corral and bring down. Those two collectively um, as a duo just act as such a really good running back tandem. If the offensive line was was better, like I, they would have such a potent running attack. Of all the plays that you know. You know, Christmas Eve, I, we had a lot going on Christmas Eve. While all these games are going on, I'm trying to catch the games. And the, the thing that caught my eye of everything that I remember from Sunday was the Titans on fourth and one running split backs. Mm. Like it was 1984. It was awesome. Split backs under center. Not just split backs. Under center split back. You don't see that often with Derrick Henry and Tajay Spears. And just, you know, running old school split back stuff. Yeah, don't see it. 
you don't see it very often. Um, so yeah, like I said, I think most of the discussion here needs to be high level type of stuff because look, Tannehill uh, had a dropped interception in there, a fumble in the pocket. He did not look great. He was uh, very inconsistent earlier in the year. Will Levis is going to be the guy going forward here for Tennessee. Yeah. I'm curious to know what the market looks like for Ryan Tannehill because he shouldn't be – like he should be attractive for some teams as a as a bridge quarterback type, but not really encouraged by what we've seen from Tannehill this yeah, year. Yeah, I mean he didn't – he certainly didn't do anything to say, you know, hey, not so fast, Will Levis. Um, I don't know that he did anything to suggest that actually he's got anything left in the tank as a starter. I mean – his critics have always pointed to the fact that that offense, it's a very specific type of offense that's uh, propped him up is the wrong term, but you know made him look potentially better than he would in any other system. So now that becomes relevant because by definition, he's gonna be going to some other system. And if he's not gonna look that good, even when he was at his best, he's not at his best anymore. So how bad is he gonna look in a different system? I don't know that even as a bridge quarterback, there is a place for Ryan Tannehill. I think we might be looking at a backup strictly from now on. Um, yeah. I mean, we'll see what happens in Atlanta. The, the connection with Arthur Smith was always going to be a, a thing. But if Atlanta doesn't make the playoffs, yeah. you know, it's a whole. But, like, you, if you're Atlanta, I mean, even if Arthur Smith stays there and they, they do this again next year, like, can you – you can't sell anybody that, like, Ryan Tannehill is the – even if he's the bridge is the answer. I feel like you could sell it more because you're, here's how you would sell it. If you're Atlanta, you would say, if we just had average quarterback play with these playmakers, yeah, with the potential but, of this run game, with the way this defense played this year, if we just had that, we're, we're going to win the NFC South. Right. And, and it doesn't mean you wouldn't look elsewhere at quarterback too, but I could see, you know, so maybe it is like a half bridge, more backup type deal. But either know. way, from a Seahawks perspective, I think they're the story here. Um, a massive win for Seattle, who just you – know, they got out of that rough stretch. We talked about the teams that have had these tough stretches of play. Seattle just had to play the Rams, 49ers, Cowboys, 49ers, and then the Eagles. And now back-to-back 20-17 to wins against the Eagles and the Titans. And they're going to go up against the Steelers on New Year's Eve. And then they have the Cardinals, Seattle. So they've got a path now to win their last couple games, get back into the playoffs, and um, – just be that like, they they're just coming off of losing four straight and five out of six and they could be a playoff team here because they control their own destiny on these in these last two weeks so huge couple weeks here for the Seattle Seahawks mm-hmm. let's um let's continue the AFC South misery for the one o'clock games uh, Atlanta Falcons 29 Indianapolis Colts 10 so we just talked about the Falcons they moved to seven and eight Colts fall to eight and seven Taylor Heineke Gets the start, plays pretty well for Atlanta. Again, gets the ball to those playmakers, but Atlanta's run game was absolutely fantastic. Interesting breakdown there. Bijan Robinson, Tyler Algier, Codero Patterson all ran well, all three of them. The three headed monster. This was like the Atlanta team that we had expected to see for much of the year. Well, this felt like now that um, Arthur Smith's job is actually on the line, it's like, well, the way out of this is obviously to lean on the playmakers that I've got. So Bijan Robinson not just gets a ton of work uh, as, a, as, a bat, as a runner, but had 10 targets in the game. So Bijan has 10 targets. Kyle Pitts gets a touchdown. They were loading him up early before eventually they, you know, the Arthur Smith's better angel shouted him down. He started feeding Jonu Smith again. Um, but, like, 
you know, that they have good playmakers. I mean, this is why people have been screaming all season long, hey, the guy that you drafted at the top of the draft and Kyle Pitts, this insane, unique unicorn as a tight end, wide receiver, hybrid freak show, like just start throwing, use these guys. They're amazing. And instead he's been finding ways, you know, to get Scotty Miller the ball or Daryl Hodge or whatever. It's like, there's a reason people have been asking that week on week on week on week. These guys are supremely talented and you have to be able to find a way to craft an offense that doesn't just, you know, use them, sprinkle them in there, but like is built on them. Yeah, I mean, this, was, um, this is what I'm saying. Like for much of the season, the Falcons played like this. They've just come out of this lull, but they, they've played well for a chunk of the season, especially defensively. I mean, the, the, the Colts, uh, Jonathan Taylor had uh, 13 yards on his first two carries. After that, he goes 16 carries for 30 yards. And the, the Falcons just cracked down and said, nope, not, you know, we're going to stop the run. Um, and again, it, it complemented that offense, right? The offense doesn't have to be great. It's just like, hey, lean on the playmakers. The run game was excellent. Um, but the Falcons' defense, man, they were down 7 nothing, and that was it. They shut down the Colts. They shut down the running attack. Nate Landman had six stops, a linebacker for the Falcons. He had a great game. Caden Ellis, Bud Dupree all had good games against the run. Um, but the Falcons did a really nice job up front, and they've done that throughout the season, right? Turn teams one-dimensional, stop the run pretty well. And um, this was like early season Falcons. Um, so impressive by them. Might be too little too late. You know, they, they, they're coming off of, we mentioned on the preview show, the last two weeks for about five quarters of play, the Falcons uh, pretty much blew their season. <laughs> A fourth quarter lost to the Bucks, and then losing to the Panthers in the rain due to some turnovers, right? I mean, that was the Falcon season. They're seven and eight. They're this five-quarter stretch away from, you know, having nine wins, basically, and uh, being nine and six and being in control of the NFC South. So that's what the potential end of the Arthur Smith era comes down to here. I don't think they're technically out of it because the Saints and Bucks will play each other next week. The Saints can could beat the Bucks. I mean, there's, there's still stuff that could happen, but it's now a long shot for Atlanta, but a huge win for them and a disappointment for the Colts who are coming in as, you know, again, AFC South team trying to grab control of the division, eight and six, and they they get up seven nothing, and that was it. Get outscored twenty nine to three for the rest of the game against the Falcons. Yeah, I mean, you just sort of need to look at the the players that Gardner Minshew was throwing at. I mean, no Michael Pittman because of that hit that bent him over backwards. Um, he wasn't able to go in this game. So Kylan Granson led the team or was second on the team in targets. Um, and catches. Josh Downs was first. Will Mallory, so two mid to low round tight ends over the last couple of years were second and third in terms of targets. Uh, Alec Pierce with with seven targets as well. That the this was the usual Alec Pierce game, not the one where he had like two random fifty yard bombs in there. Right. Um, that's just not like that's not an NFL receiving core as as it stood. So you're not going to get you know good Minshew out of that. Yeah, so a disappointment for the Colts. Uh, definitely coming off coming off a big win against the Steelers, and uh, you, you mentioned the injuries and the struggle there. So the Colts are going to finish the season against the Raiders, the red hot Las Vegas Raiders, mm. on New Year's Eve, and then the Week 18 they'll be playing the Texans. So a couple, the obviously the Colts Texans game will be high leverage because they're both sitting there tied at eight and seven right now, but. Big game against the Raiders next week in Indy. Both games are at home, so that's the one encouraging thing. They'll be in the Dome these next couple weeks, the Colts. 
Yeah, no more use for this game? No. No. That's it. Uh, let's go Packers 33, Panthers 30. Packers move to 7-8. and eight. Panthers fall to 2-13. and 13. Is this the most encouraging 33-30 loss you've ever seen? <laughs> Carolina. Um, because Bryce Young showed signs of life. I got a data point on that, though. Bryce to, Young with his 300-yard passing game. Yeah, Bryce Young finishes 23 of 36 for 312 yards and two touchdowns. Um, I want to talk about Bryce in a minute. Let's give the Packers the proper credit here, though. Um, they needed the win. They pulled it off. They mm -hmm. handled the comeback by Carolina. Again, another one of those games. Packers were only favored by four and a half um, because their defense had really struggled in recent weeks. They'd cooled off after their Thanksgiving, early December run. Packers were up 30 to 16 at one point, but the Panthers kept coming back, man. Bryce Young with a touchdown to DJ Chark. Um, Bryce Young, uh, two, two touchdowns to DJ Chark, including just a beautiful one, rolling to his right, and an awesome two-point conversion by Bryce Young. A lot of playmaking from Bryce. I do want to talk about him. But the Packers come back, get the game-winning field goal with 22 seconds left to escape 33-30. Yeah. Um, Aaron Jones was absolutely killing the Panthers early in this game. I mean, Green Bay should have had this really in control. And it felt like another— They did for a lot of it, yeah. Yeah, but it, so it was another one of those games. Remember previously, before the, before the truly awful performance against the Bucs, we were sort of saying— it's not that the Packers' defense has been horrendous overall, but they're situationally horrendous. So, like, when they get up, they suddenly get ridiculously— they play, like, prevent defense, right? And they play so soft, the teams are just suddenly very able to move the ball at completely at will. And what would— like, it has the exact opposite effect to the one that it's presumably trying to have. And that kind of felt like what they did in this game. Like, they got up, they, they took a lead, they took command. Aaron Jones was destroying them. The Panthers have no offense still at this point. Like, their best plays are trick plays to Smith-Marset or penalties. It's like, that's the offense right now. Pulling out tricks or hope we get a defensive holding penalty and that will move the ball. Uh, and that should, they should have been able to walk away with this game. But then they just play this crazy, soft defense. And Carolina is able to come back because of that. And Bryce Young has, like, a, a career day like 300 and something yards his previous he hadn't had over 250 before this so on one hand again if you're evaluating Bryce Young the quarterback I would say watching him he also he missed a ton of throws early right and then really settled down I mean he he looked but that's what I'm saying like that's those two things are connected to what you're saying right um but they were open like he missed open throws early on they weren't into like an ocean of open like the second half on some of those throws but um if you're just evaluating Bryce Young, you would say he definitely feels – he looks a little bit more comfortable. The natural playmaking is coming out. The the two-point conversion that he had, that scramble was outstanding. The feel – it was it was uh, Mahomesian, if you will, <laughs> as far as like understanding his speed versus the speed of his defenders, getting you know doing just enough to get into the end zone. The scramble drill touchdown to DJ Chark was just pinpoint in the red zone. Um, a lot of good stuff from Bryce Young here. But then, of course, I had to do the, the same little mini research project I did last year. When you remember the Vikings defense. Mm -hmm. and, and it was like, man, it feels like everyone's having a career day against this Vikings defense last year. And when I looked it up, there were five quarterbacks who in that particular year had their highest grades against Minnesota, which is a massive number. Yeah, Five doesn't sound like a lot until you realize, no, no, their highest grade of the season was just against this team. Well, the Packers have matched that now this year. Justin, the, the five quarterbacks 
There are five quarterbacks who have all had their highest PFF grade of the year against the Packers defense. It's Justin Herbert, Baker Mayfield, Bryce Young in this game, Kirk Cousins, and Tommy DeVito. All had their best game of the year against the Packers defense. And that's the reason why Packers fans very uneasy about uh, Joe Barry, this defense. And again, it's, it's, it's kind of tough to pinpoint. It's not as simple as they just play prevent. But they like even when they play like a simple cover two, it's just like the linebackers just aren't there. I mean, it's just there's too many easy throws. And even when they try to play man, they don't. It's not all just oh they play soft zone. They try to play man, and they're giving up a lot of uh, space as well. They don't. They're they're just really struggling on that side of the ball. They have this tendency to play like crazy off man, like way off. It's like that. Yeah. I mean, those things don't work. You can't give somebody that much space playing man coverage. That's just automatic, you know, yardage. Um, so either way, you're. I mean, Jordan Love plays another uh, another nice game. You, you know, Romeo Dobbs finds the end zone. Dontarian Wicks again. It's all the it's all the young guys. Um, I think there's a lot to be optimistic about with the Packers on the offensive side of the ball. And I'm not trying to look too far ahead here. If they do make a change at defensive coordinator, much like Minnesota, yeah. using that comparison again, just a change year to year we see makes a big impact. Mm-hmm. Um, never calling for anybody's job or anything like that. But if Green Bay makes a change, just bringing someone else in there with the current level of talent, Green Bay is dangerous next year. If, you know, love continues to progress, this, this youth movement on the offensive side of the ball. They will, that'll be, assuming it does open up, that will be a fascinating job opening because Matt LaFleur is in that, you know, Shanahan coaching tree uh, that the big thing those guys are going through at the moment is all of them have gravitated towards that Vic Fangio type of defense because it was the one that gave them the most problems. And I actually think that it's had an effect that that sort of meshing of those two has had such a strong effect that all those offenses now are able to carve up that defense. Shanahan, um, you know, McDaniel, LaFleur, I think them going up against Vic Fangio-type defenses actually means that it's gone from a weakness to a strength. Um, and a couple of those defenses are failing. So if you're LaFleur and you're like, right, this guy didn't work out, theoretically that was supposed to be that, do I go and get another Vic Fangio disciple type of coach? Like, do I still want this scheme to practice against? Or have I completed that level? And do I want to find the next level? Like, do I go after some sort of Brian Flores disciple? Because now that's the defense that's causing us problems. Like, it just becomes this really interesting philosophical discussion of what LaFleur wants to practice against. I was wondering uh, if you were going to connect the dots and maybe suggest Brandon Staley. I thought about it, and I didn't want to do that to people. Last time Brandon Staley was just defensive coordinator and not head coach, mm. it was pretty good. That's right. why I got a head coach. But like job. all of the things you're describing about Joe Barry's defense and how, you know, that those all are exactly what the Chargers have been doing since he got there. Yeah. So I don't know that you want to go. Like, usually you tend to see some kind of knee-jerk reaction in the opposite direction of what you just got rid of to just replace him with a different name who had done the exact same thing over the last couple of years feels wrong. Yeah, it's tough to um... – it's the week 16 review show, so we can't get too far ahead of ourselves. Off-season discussion's fun, but... One um, Packers element that's worth bringing up is Rashawn Gary hasn't had a good game in a while now. Uh, the last, like, really good performance from him was week 12 against Detroit. That was Thanksgiving, so... He was tearing it up for a while, too. Oh, yeah, he was on, like, an all-pro... I mean, remember, they started the season, and he wasn't playing, like, a full-time workload because they were easing him back in from his knee injury. But on 
the full on the part-time workload, he was basically matching any pass rusher in the NFL for production for PFF grade. He didn't have a bad game until like week eight. Um, so basically, the first half of the season, he was on an absolute tear. The last month, though, things, since Thanksgiving, he hasn't had a pass rushing grade above sixty-one, and or an overall grade above sixty-two point four. I mean, they need Gary to be playing at his best for that defense to be anywhere near capable of you know, doing what it can do. Which coincides with the defensive failures. And on that list yeah. of the five quarterbacks that I mentioned that have had their career games or season high grades, those are those are three straight weeks, by the way. That's Tommy DeVito, then Baker Mayfield, yeah, and then uh, Bryce Young in this game. Three straight quarterbacks. So Nick Mullins next week, as uh, people in my oh, God. mentions – have said maybe Nick Mullins is next to have his best game next week and we'll talk a little Lions Vikings in just a minute but got to tell you about our friends over at prize picks we're already looking ahead to week 17 so here's something to watch the PFF prize picks lineup in the one o'clock window on New Year's Eve we got Rashad White of the Bucks going more than 69 and a half rushing yards we have DeAndre Hopkins of the Titans going more than 54 and a half receiving yards and we have Matthew Stafford going more than 255 and a half passing yards Stafford's gone more than this line in four straight games we got the research here from Eli Stafford's gone more in four straight games uh the Saints are allowing four and a half yards per attempt and White's gone more than this in four of the last five games so reason to like this lineup going into New Year's Eve prize picks is the largest daily fantasy sports platform in North America the easiest and most exciting way to play DFS. It's just you against the numbers. You pick more, you pick less. It's that easy. Instead of battling thousands of players, including pros and sharks, you pick more than or less than a two to six player stat projection. And that's it. Watch the winnings roll in. Want to play alongside some of Prize Picks' favorite players like rapper Meek Mill and comedian Andrew Schultz? You could do that. You find the community plays under the promos tab of the app to view entries from some of the biggest names in Prize Picks community every single week. PrizePix even offers a reboot policy so that your entries stay in play even if one of your players gets injured. So for football and basketball games, if you have a player who exits the game in the first half and does not return in the second, that player is rebooted. PrizePix is the only daily fantasy sports platform with an injury insurance policy. So you go to prizepix.com slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. Once again, prizepix.com slash PFFNFL. Use the code PFFNFL. For a first deposit match up to $100. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Mentioned Lions and Vikings. Lions 30. Vikings 24. Lions move to 11-4. A little too, uh, to break down atop the NFC there. 
because there's now three teams sitting at 11 and four. Um, but a huge win for the Lions. Nick Mullins for the Vikings. Four interceptions, including the game clincher, which um, was not great. Uh, seven total turnover-worthy plays. Seven. For Mullins. We need, to, hey, we, we need to keep track of like what the single-game records are for things like that. How close is seven turnover-worthy plays to a record? The game that comes to mind is Josh Freeman on Monday Night Football. Yeah. Uh, was he with the? Was that the Giants? It was with the Vikings, wasn't it? Was he a Viking? He or a was against with, the Giants. He had a game with the Vikings where he showed up and then just imploded. It was Josh Freeman off the couch, and um, you know, off the couch can go any any which way. We see Joe, maybe even more impressive that Joe Flacco is doing what he's doing. It's a wide range of outcomes when you're fresh off the couch. Josh Freeman with the expected off the couch outcome, which may have been a nine or so turnover worthy play effort. John Skelton. Most certainly has something in there. There's no way John Skelton ever put together a seven turnover worthy play game before getting benched. Yeah, like you'd get yanked before yeah, that. Yeah, he, he never had the rope to get to get through seven. I mean, poor Peyton had one of those. He might have had six in a game because he could barely even, you know, step on his quad or whatever it was, and kept trying to throw the ball outside the numbers against the Chiefs. That was rough. Um, anyway, in this particular game, uh, this is an important one for the Lions. Obviously, uh, that matchup against Brian Flores. We talked about how. Important that was. I got some numbers on Goff against the Blitz and how he handled it, but I thought they... Only three for that Giants game for Freeman against the Oh, Giants he just missed every throw. the Vikings. Yes, he had a grade of 30. That's what it was. He just missed every three. He just yeah. missed everything by a mile. 3.6 yards per attempt. Um, anyway, I want... <laughs> 20 of 53. Yeah, I want to get your thoughts on this Lions-Vikings game, however, hmm. if you want to do that, and then I'll circle back yeah. with... Um, how they how they tore up the Vikings blitz I mean, and some numbers around that. That number is is a big part of my thoughts of this game. I mean, Nick Mullins just an absolute meltdown of ridiculous turnovers. Like I I don't know what you do now as a head coach where obviously you lose the starter, you have to turn to some form of backup and all of these guys are flawed in some way shape or form. And I tweeted something like over the weekend there have never been more quarterbacks in the league who can come in and win you a couple of games and look okay for a brief period of time. Um, but the number that can do it for longer than that, like for 10 games for a season, might just be the same it's always been. Right? So you can get a Jake Browning, and you can get two or three games where Jake Browning looks amazing. And then Jake Browning goes back to being Jake Browning, and it's like, okay, that was that. Next. Like, I don't know if you just cycle through these guys and hope you get the three games and then – like the art is in discovering when the meltdown is about to come you like you jump away from Josh Dobbs just in time to get a couple of good Nick Mullins games and then before this game you go no this is Jaron Hall's start this week we used to play that game remember Ryan Fitzpatrick but I don't know if you can predict them I think you just it's rolling the dice every time you send one of these guys out like are we going to get the game where he does a pretty good job it's maybe one or two you know rough plays in there because he's Nick Mullins or are you going to get the game where it looks like he cannot avoid throwing a turnover. Like, I, there's nothing I can call where he's not just going to go, like, close his eyes, blindly heave a duck into the middle of the defense and turn a turnover into something that shouldn't have existed. Like, I don't know if you have any control over that, if you're just at the mercy of when that's going to show up. But that showed up in this game where, for all the good Nick Mullins does, and there is some, like, he can move the ball, he can, you know, make some passes he can diagnose the defense he can like there was some positive in there but all of it was undone and then some by not being able to go more than like a drive and a half before throwing the ball to Detroit yeah, I was gonna say if you take out the seven turnover worthy plays yeah there was a lot of good in there 
I mean, again, I think I think you also see just the impact of Justin Jefferson. No matter who the quarterback is, that dude's open. And oh, dude, he did it again. That 141 yards. Third and 27 play yeah. was like the fourth and 18 play against the Bills, where it's like they just threw it up. Jefferson's down there. I know it's double coverage, but what the hell? That's still our best option. And he comes down with it for the, the second time. And then that last, the last, the last interception, the last turnover-worthy play. That was a pass that was there to be made. Like I. That was, I don't know how, what happened to that, but it just came out like an absolute dead duck and was off by 10 yards. You like, know, if he actually put it where he was trying to put it, that might have hit it. You know me, a big uh, context, weather guy, and, and the whole thing. Mm. And I'm always looking for it. You know, like Mahomes threw some passes yesterday where you're like, man, it was windy yesterday. I can kind of see how maybe he missed a bunch. This was a dome yes. in a clean pocket. And a pass that looked like it was thrown in gale force winds. It looked like, yes. Like there was, maybe the Lions have, uh, you never saw the movie Angels in the Outfield from the mid-90s. No. Where they would just, you know, the Angels would fly through and like take the ball and put it over the fence. It, I mean, it was like forces took this ball and were like, this is just going to slow down and wobble. I mean, it was just a bad throw. It was a very bad throw by Nick Mullins. It was awful. He was staring it down too. But my point being, I uh, think that was a throw to be made. Like that was... Like less than a minute left, fourth quarter. They need the touchdown, um, and that would like there was a space, there was a hole, and an open Justin Jefferson for that throw to be made. And then it was just one of the worst throws anybody's ever thrown. Without, it wasn't off platform. Like he'd gotten through the pocket at that point. He had oh, his yeah. feet under him. It wasn't one of those ones where oh, there's the limit. The physical limitations of Nick Mullins are showing up, right? He was off platform. It had to be all arm. He just doesn't have Josh Allen arm. No, like that, that was a throw you expect Nick Mullins to be able to make, and he wasn't even close on it. Um, I want to highlight on the other side, Detroit. Uh, Mel Fonwu, by the way, with that game-clinching interception. Huge win for the Lions. In addition to, like, he haven't he had, he's turned into one of the most dynamic pass rushers in the NFL in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. I mean, they need it. <laughs> They needed the uh, the Lions. Two sacks from Elefonwu as well. So he had all the stats. Did he win uh, NFC Player of the Week? He almost certainly will, right? Did, are those real sacks or are they just our sacks? I don't know. Um, anyway, the the Lions, we, we talked a lot about what, what they were going to do against Flores' defense. The Flores change of pace, you know, three-man rush and blitz and everything. Early on, the Vikings were blitzing, and they didn't really stop. And I thought that the Lions had a lot of answers. Again, I we don't get a whole lot of stuff right here on the show at least I didn't this week I think I only got four games right one thing I may have gotten right though is that Amonra St. Brown uh, in the Lions they have great answers yeah to the blitz so it felt like the it felt like Ben Johnson and the Lions offense had identified like the soft area of this Vikings defense so what we were talking about that they do you know they crowd the line of scrimmage and then they either send six or more guys or they drop everybody out right but one of the other elements, one of the other unique characteristics of this defense is they have the shallowest average depth of linebacker of any team in the NFL. So all of that stacking the line of scrimmage, even when they drop out, there's a limit to how deep those guys can get because they're coming from the line of scrimmage. They're not starting, you know, five yards back. So there, you, there's this very obvious, like, no man's land in this Vikings defense between wherever that first layer gets to and the back end of the safeties, the three safeties in the corners and stuff, right? And it felt like the Lions were able to run stuff just into that space. So they would run a bunch of vertical routes to just clear, to keep the safeties back. 
and then they would run something that broke at that middle level. And they, they just hit that over and over again. And as long as they could get the ball out quickly enough, they just they kept targeting that soft spot in the, in the defense. Yeah, it's, it's a fun little cat and mouse game, Sam. And we're going to see that in a couple of weeks again. They'll have a rematch in week 18. But the, here's the final numbers. Goff against the Blitz. And they blitzed on 26 of, I think it was 42 or 43 dropbacks. So we're, we're in the 60% range of bringing five plus. Um, Goff against the Blitz finished 22 of 26 for 183. And uh, an 85 PFF grade. And Amonra St. Brown just against the Blitz. 10 catches for 70 yards in six first downs. So he was the guy that they kept hitting. Um, against no blitz, that's when, I mean, that's when the the Vikings had uh, far more success against Goff. Goff was only eight for 14, 74 yards. Um, so th- again, that'll be very interesting to see what they do in a couple weeks here. Um, love that matchup. Lions win this one. Here's what we have now. The 49ers on the back of their loss. 49ers, Eagles, and Lions are all 11 and four. The one, two, and three seeds in the NFC the, unless the Cowboys leapfrog the Eagles they're almost certainly going to be the top three seeds in in some order um, Lions play the Cowboys next week but they're all 11 and 4 and the, the Niners have the tiebreaker based off uh, they have the head-to-head the Niners have the head-to-head over the Eagles but I think breaking a three-way tie starts with conference wins or something like that so the Niners are five and uh, there's nine and one in the conference so they've got the tiebreaker over the Eagles and the Eagles have the tiebreaker over the Lions due to strength of victory, which is a number as well. So anyway, there's a lot to still play here, and the Lions technically have a path to a bye mm. to the number one seed. And the Lions have clinched a playoff spot. Yeah, in the cl- and clinched, clinched the division for the, division. the first time since 1993. Yeah, I, was- I usually, again, I poo-poo the clinched a playoff spot, but this is celebratory times well, here have, in Detroit. They've never won the NFC North before. That's correct. Like the last time they won this division, it was the Central. The last time they won this division was early Barry Sanders' career. So not even like, you know, late into the career when things had gone wrong. And, you know, this was like early Barry Sanders was the last time they actually won the division. So, yeah, I mean, you know, wherever this goes from here, the Lions have achieved something under Dan Campbell that is is a remarkable turnaround from, you know, the ultimate like nadir of winless seasons 2008 you know 0 and 16 I mean the Lions were the worst team in the NFL for a period and now they are not just a playoff team but a division winner for the first time since you know Barry Sanders is held up as this watershed moment of when the Lions went wrong right they had this all-time great talent and then they repeated it later with Calvin Johnson or maybe Matthew Stafford or whatever but Barry Sanders is like they had this all-world talent they were a playoff team they won divisions they were young and then they sort of systematically dismantled that team around him to the point where Barry Sanders said enough of this crap I'm quitting and just walked out of the game like and honestly and you look at that and that you kind know of that wasn't necessarily the reason though it kind of was though it just was done yeah, just but, you watch like, the documentary. He's like, ah, I don't want to do this anymore. Right, but a big reason he didn't want to do it anymore is because the Lions were cheeks. <laughs> that was a big motivating factor of why he no longer wanted to play the game. Um, but the point being, that kind of started this spiral into the Lions being terrible for a long period of time. And they've been able to, Dan Campbell uh, has been able to preside over a true exorcism of that negative baggage. So impressive, man. What, what Dan Campbell has done. Um, just what they've done top to bottom 
with the Lions. So kudos to the Lions. Congrats on winning the division. And there might be more to come. They're battling for seeding, and they're battling for a potential buy here. That's all in play over these next couple weeks for the Detroit Lions. All right, I think there's one more 1 o'clock game from Sunday to discuss. That is, where'd it go? I was on it. Hmm? New York Jets 30, Washington Commanders 28. Trevor Simeon, baby. I mean, full disclosure, I had to you know pick my spots as to where my focus was yeah. on Sunday at 1. And not only was this game, you know, nothing except for draft position as far as what was on the line, it also was 20 to nothing yeah. at one point. So my focus waned. And then the commanders came back and almost had a chance to win. Or they, I mean, they took the lead 28 27 late in the fourth. And then uh, Greg the Leg, 54 yard field goal, 10 seconds left to give the Jets the 30 to 28 victory. Utterly ridiculous game. Like, this started off and everything that could have possibly gone wrong for Washington went wrong in the first couple of minutes. And they're buried in a hole. They're down, you know, multiple scores, three scores. And you're like, wow, this, this game's done, you know. Next. Uh, and then, like, Sam Howell has just completely fallen off a cliff over the second half of the season. Um, a couple of interceptions. Forget the interceptions. Like, just wasn't making plays. The I mean, interceptions, like, were... Yeah, he didn't play well, but those weren't necessarily even his fault on him. But everything else has been just bad. Everything was Negative bad. Plays. Like he just wasn't making yeah. any positive contribution to the, the team, to the offense whatsoever. And they bench him for Jacoby Brissett, who then actually does make an impact, start moving the ball and, and having some success. The Jets' defense like was started giving them some plays, and then somehow again turnovers and crazy things like trevor simeon can't handle handle a high snap a high snap but it was, you know one most quarterbacks would bring in you would, I would say have caught it. yeah you would definitely would have caught it thank you at least it would have hit you in the face and i could be an nfl qb then you would have had a chance from there um and that gave washington the ball for a touchdown just like weird game and then eventually the jets ended up getting it when they needed to but like the I, Late in the game, you're looking at this. You're like, how is this the game? Like, this was dead after the first quarter, and somehow it's live now. Uh, Brees Hall with a nice game for the Jets. Had a 36-yard touchdown showing that big playability. Getting back to showing that big playability. And then a beautiful, I mean, it was like a two- or three-yard run, which was just outstanding. The way it was, he, a one, was it a one-yard run? It was one of the greatest, like, one-yard runs ever. Yeah. It was a one-yard touchdown one, yeah. run where he beat two guys and then did the T. Higgins thing where he, like, spun back yeah. around with the ball to get it over the line as he's falling out of bounds. Such a good play. And then he also had 12 catches for 96 yards. So much of the game flow doesn't make sense here. So if you're if I told you the Jets – the Jets are going to be up 20 to nothing, and they have Trevor Simeon at quarterback, you'd say, okay, they're going to you know, not drop back a whole lot. Simeon's going to have 20 dropbacks. He dropped back over 50 times in this game. <laughs> he, he also had, did you see, he had a 25-yard intentional grounding penalty because he got, it was one of those plays where he got himself into so much trouble behind the line of scrimmage that Trevor Simeon no longer had the arm to get it back to the line of scrimmage from the situation he found himself in. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, just through the flag, you're like, that's, that's bad. <laughs> that's bad quarterbacking play right there. Yeah, it was not great. Um, so from a commander's perspective, so there's a couple things at play that I'm looking at here. So the stat line for Sam Howell is, needs to be read, mm. unfortunately. Sam Howell finishes 6 of 22 for 56 yards and two picks. Also got sacked once for a negative, you know, for 13-yard loss. Passer rating of 1.7 in this game. 
Jacoby Brissett comes in, and for the second straight week, I believe it was, right? Um, Jacoby mm. Brissett looks good Yeah. after Sam Howell looks not good. 10 of 13 for 100 yards and a touchdown for Brissett. Hit a nice throw to Logan Thomas on the skinny post for a touchdown. Um, so Brissett's been outplaying Sam Howell and relief yeah. outings in recent weeks. Um, to me, the most interesting thing, if you're a Commanders or a Jets fan, is the draft position, of course. The Commanders are now sitting at number three in the draft order. And I do think the way Sam Howell has played in the presumption that there'll be a new regime, they're, they're going to be in the market for a quarterback, I think, now. That has really switched, yeah. in my mind, over the last few weeks. Again, not that Sam Howell was a slam dunk, but they'd at least consider it, you know? Um, and then the Jets, if you're really, you know, Roger said he's going to come back and he's going to bring his whole coaching staff back because he's running the show. If you're the Jets, you're probably in the market for a left tackle. You're now sitting, with the win, the Jets are now sitting at nine in the draft order. Had they been sitting at five or six, which they would be in that mix, they would be looking at maybe a Joe Alt from Notre Dame, Olu Fashanu from, um, from Penn State. The Jets might be losing out on their top left tackle here come draft time. So that's my biggest takeaway coming out of this game. Yeah, I mean, it's the Sam Howell thing has been really disappointing, I think, from a Washington point of view. Like, he, it's not like he was playing great to start the season, but there was... The stuff he was wildly inconsistent, so there was a lot of good, and then the stuff that he was bad at felt like it could be improved upon. And he's actually he actually has improved on some of the stuff that was his worst traits earlier in the season, but it's come at the cost of all of the good stuff disappearing. Like he had a he was leading the league in big time throws for a period of time, deep into the season. And okay, he was throwing more than any other quarterback in the NFL, so that's part of it. But his big time throw rate was very high as well. He's had three of his last five games have had none, and one of the other ones is that one. So in four of the last five games, he's only had one big-time throw or less. Um, so all of the good that he was bringing to the table has just evaporated, and he still got the negative that he's bringing to the table as well. So now you're just looking at a guy who went in the fifth round and is somehow starting games in the NFL. Yeah, man. There's uh, just it's more decisions more decisions for Washington and I think you know the last few weeks maybe make it easier for um for them going forward um so commanders fall to four and 11 Jets move to six and nine let's get to the four o'clock window is that it yeah Chicago Bears 27 Arizona Cardinals 16 Bears move to six and nine and the Cardinals fall to three and 12 um, with the Patriots win on Christmas Eve night Arizona now jumps into the number two spot in the draft order oldest rivalry in the nfl a classic mm. yeah first took place in 1920 apparently oh what a game and neither of those two teams was called what they're currently called the bears i think with the decatur staley's and i forget where the cardinals were from but it was somewhere else not chicago like st became, louis no 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 like it was a one of those ridiculously specific regional midwest deals that then became the chicago cardinals then became wherever the hell else they moved for right. the rest of their years. But it was the Decatur Staley's versus the something else Cardinals. I already have no more use for this game. No? Nothing? No. Yeah, you got nothing. I mean, Justin Fields scrambled really well. Yeah. Um, so the Bears finished with 250 yards on the ground. Of course, that includes scrambles and everything. Khalil Herbert with a nice game, 112 yards. Justin Fields with nine carries for 97. Yeah. Cardinals couldn't stop Justin Fields at all. I mean, you know, that was a, a big part of this. They're defense couldn't really stop them the barbarian had a sack though barbarian had a sack i was he needs four i and mean he needed pressures. like a four sack game yeah and five pressures to his credit yeah. like he had a good game 
the barbarian. Uh, Bears got up 21 nothing, and um, Cardinals, you know, scored late fourth quarter. Got within got within eight in the fourth quarter, but Cairo Santos with the 29 uh, yard field goal with a minute five left to officially seal the deal for the 11 point win for the Bears. This felt like a game where I think Chicago felt like they were trying to run out the clock for like two and a half quarters. They've had a, I mean, that's how they played the, the two Lions games. Yeah. Were like that, where they had this lead and they spent the third and fourth quarter trying to right. you know, put together that's 10 like, to 15 play you know, drives. Maybe, like, I, I appreciate the effort, but at some point, you just keep winning before you try and, you know, salt the win away. Like, let's, let's just keep going. We're, not, we're in no danger here of, I think, losing this game if we just keep playing the way we're playing. And instead, it was like, well, let's batten down the hatches and shut up shop. We've got it on ice now. And that was the only thing that let the Cardinals back into the game. Um, I think, again, the high-level stuff for me, for both teams, for Arizona, they went from early in the season being really feisty and being competitive, and I know they just beat Pittsburgh a couple weeks ago. They've, they've sprinkled in enough feistiness mm-hmm. while still sitting here with a, with a top-two pick. So sprinkling of feisty. Right? Which is a nice, nice combo, right? Yeah. For John, you know, Jonathan Gannon, first-time head coach. You want to be feisty. You want to have a winning culture, uh-huh. but without the wins. You know, that's the, that's the dream. <laughs> If you're Arizona. Winning culture without the wins. Winning culture without the wins. Mm. Now, on the other hand, if you're Chicago, they haven't had a winning culture since 2018. Like, they haven't had a lot of wins in a while. And, you know, it's one of those balance. Like, again, you know, you lose a little draft position. It doesn't matter. You still have the number one overall pick. The Bears are going to be sitting at eight right now. Whether they're eight or 10 or 11, I don't think they care because they're going to have that that opportunity to probably pick number one overall. Um, but if you're Chicago, stacking a few wins and going on a little run and having some momentum heading into the offseason and next year and seeing defensive improvement, some of their young guys developing, all those things I think are good for the Bears. And from a Cardinals point of view, I mean, they're sort of sitting there looking like their most obvious draft pick is Marvin Harrison Jr., right? It's like the number one wide receiver in the draft, which also – perfectly tailors with what is currently I think the biggest need on this team is they don't have that number one impact receiver now okay Marquise Brown was not in this game even when he is I don't know that you want to pay him the kind of money he's going to want to get paid this offseason so you, you might be without him anyway but like if you inserted Marvin Harrison Jr. into this game and you know the the current receiving core was the same but now you've got Marvin Harrison Jr. is the anchor and the, the number one target guy. That would have looked, I think, totally different. Um, I, the one thing I disagree on is I don't know if Marvin Harrison Jr. is the most obvious pick. I think they have to consider quarterback. I don't know that they are. They sound – I mean, look, it could all be coach speak at this point, but it kind of sounds like they're fairly well set on Kyler. And even if – maybe they'll trade down from number two to – to, The trade down's a, a fascinating move there. But if, if they're they, stuck yeah. – I don't think they're taking a quarterback. I think they'll take the best non-quarterback. I don't know, man. You evaluate Caleb Williams and Drake May, and it might be the play. I know it's a lot to get out from under as far as right. Mar- Kyler's contract and everything. but And I think they might be genuinely just sold on him. Like, he's the guy. We've got our guy. We don't need, you know, we don't need the quarterback. We already have one in the building. Now, I don't know how you can come to that conclusion based off what we've seen so far, but they kind of sound like they have yeah and they might be and again this is the battle this is these two teams would right now if the draft was today have the top two picks the bears and the cardinals and i said going in the biggest story is is fields can fields do anything to salvage his bears career will he do anything that makes him attractive enough for other teams 
and you know will kyler did the same you know same kind of question this was a fields game where the passing stat line's not great yeah but you see 97 yards on the ground again that's what he brings to the table even when he's not um on from a from a pass game standpoint he brings a lot to the table on the ground and that'll be attractive for enough teams i think that yeah. there'll be something this was a game though where you know and the fields, the spectrum of opinion on Justin Fields is all over the place. I mean, there is a huge volume of Bears fans that think he's absolutely legit and is a star and the Bears are screwing him. And yet, like this, though, against the Cardinals defense, this was the kind of game where you, even though he played pretty well and his running was spectacular and he was the difference between winning and losing, like they don't, they probably don't win this game without Justin Fields. Given the opposition, this was a game where if you think he's that good, you would have wanted to see more as a passer from Justin Fields in this game. Uh, I have an important update on the record for turnover-worthy plays in a game. You've been loading this I the whole time? No, no, no. I, I have people that do these things for me. Oh. Ben Cooper, our editor extraordinaire, came awesome. back with information. Uh, apparently, it's a three-way tie for the most turnover-worthy plays in a game at nine. Three players have had nine turnover-worthy plays in a game. Name them. They're all gettable. Uh, is Skelton one of them? No. Okay. Derek Anderson? No. One of them we've mentioned in this thing. It's not Josh Freeman, but we, his name has come up in volatility discussions. Fitzpatrick had yes. one. Yeah, Ryan Fitz. 2016, Ryan Fitz, Fitz with Magic. nine in a game. I also, I want to say, and this is the reason why we had those Fitzpatrick discussions. Was it week three of 2016? Yes, it was. Because in week two, he absolutely dealt. Like he, he had, have, he had he one, had, to hit that point, he had one of the best games of his career in week two, and he came back in week three with nine turnover. Was that the year where he started with two games of 90 and then had the disaster? The Something like that, yeah. yeah. Like, I think he like torched the Bills on Thursday Night Football, like didn't miss a throw. <laughs> And came back the next week with nine turnover-worthy plays. Because we used game. to joke, as soon as, Tan, uh, as soon as Fitzpatrick starts playing well, yeah, yeah. you bench him. Right. Right? It's going to run out. Yeah, exactly. He's the, he's the archetype of that discussion we were having before. Okay, two more. Uh, give me some time. We'll just This will be like a running. Oh, okay. We'll let the chat play. All right. Yeah, the chat could play the game. Uh, which other? Uh, at some point, I might need the seasons, and I could, okay. I could do a good we'll job do that. of helping with that. All right. Um, was Mark Bolger one of them? No. Okay. Mark would never. No, he would never. But, you know, but when we started grading, he was at the, the tail end. All right, got to tell you about our next partner, AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. It's a daily thing here on the PFF NFL podcast, drinking that AG1 because I like to have my coffee in the morning and I like to have my AG1. I like to have all those nutrients, and it really does make me feel great every single morning. Gets me going. Gets me ready to go for the day. There's no way I could focus on a two-and-a-half-hour podcast without my AG1, and uh, that's why we believe in it here on the PFF NFL Podcast. Just like all great athletes, they have one thing in common. They take care of their bodies, and a huge part of that starts with optimizing whole body health. A lot of, a lot of them also drink AG1, and that's why I'm a huge fan. With every daily serving, I'm setting myself up for success with 75 high-quality ingredients that give me the key daily nutrients to support energy, focus, strength, and clarity. It's this micro habit that delivers macro benefits and helps just about everybody take great care of their health every single day. Just mix the one small scoop with water, kick off my day with that and my coffee, then I'm done. Also costs less than $3 a day. Pretty good, if you ask me. It's a really effective daily habit with high-quality sourced ingredients, a win-win for everybody here on the PFF NFL Podcast. So 
If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. You go to drinkag1.com slash PFF. That's drinkag1.com slash PFF. Go check it out right now. All right, the other 4 o'clock game to discuss. Tampa Bay Bucks 30, Jacksonville Jaguars 12. More AFC self-sadness here, Sam. Mm. Um, Bucks move to 8-7 and seven and uh, even more control over the NFC South. Of course, they're playing the Saints next week with the chance to, I believe, clinch the division if they win. Um, Bucks are on a roll right now, and Jags are absolutely reeling with their fourth straight loss. Yeah, brutal uh, Trevor Lawrence performance. Uh, he got hurt again. He's now gotten hurt. Has he been knocked out of three straight games with different with injuries? With all different injuries. <coughs> I mean, we, were, we weren't joking. We were listing. He's had five different injuries, four, four or five different injuries in the last half season, like in the last seven or eight weeks. Yeah. And he picked up another one in this game. Yeah, he hasn't it, missed a game, right? But he's been knocked it, out of three consecutive games. And this was on Monday he went into concussion protocol and there's something like a 22% chance that yeah. you're going to make it out of concussion protocol and play. And he did. Mm-hmm. He traveled on Saturday, which was like the, the thing that if he travels to Tampa on Saturday, he'll play. Yeah. He did. He played and then got hurt with something else. Right. And I don't know that you can say they would have been better without him because, you know, C.J. Beathard. Now, Beathard played fine, but I'm not saying that would have been better. But still, Trevor Lawrence did not help in this performance against Tampa Bay. Um, generally, I mean, he threw an interception to Devin White. Now, look, it was a good play by Devin White, but Devin White getting an interception in this economy, it's not a good, it's not a good you know. I am in, fair here, Sam. It's I'm not f- a good endorsement of your play as a quarterback is all I'm saying. I am very fair here, and um, I actually forgot to put my, um, there was a very bad Devin White stat that I forgot to interject into the podcast last week. <laughs> yeah. You know, it you know, was on the cutting room floor for the two-and-a-half-hour show last week. Right. A lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. Gets but in my notes... Devin White balled out. This was the game, right? There's, there's every now and again, and I think week one of the season was similar for Devin White. Best graded player on the team. Yeah, there are games where Devin White does all the things that some people thought he was doing for years, which is being like awesome in coverage and being an awesome, you know, great blitzer and flying around the field and making plays. But he was doing that in this game. Devin White had an excellent game for the Bucks. They've <laughs> had this tumultuous few weeks where he was hurt and he was kind of benched and he wasn't really benched and. And now he's out there balling. They, they lit a fire. Are these Devin numbers White. correct? Do you know how many times you rushed the passer in this game? Is it a bunch? Yes. Yeah. I don't know. Whatever number you're thinking of, it's more. Oh, I see it now. 30. He, he, like, only Kalijah Kansi rushed the passer more than he did. That's insane. For an off-the-ball linebacker 30 times? Did they move him to edge? I didn't notice that specifically. That's a crazy number. No, he's... Uh... Lining up B gap, line up, oh yeah, they're just they're sugar and A A gaps all day. That's a third of his pass rushing snaps this season, in one game. Yeah, that's an insane level of blitz. I've never seen that number from an actual off the ball linebacker. I wonder. So I, one one thing I'm curious about, you know, when NFL teams put in game plans, I wonder how much they expected Beathard to start. If you're going to blitz that much. Um, or if it was like, we're still going to do this against Lawrence because we want, you know, he's just not, he's just not seeing the field very well. And again, the thing I mentioned about Trevor Lawrence a few weeks ago is he had those games where it felt like he was upping the difficulty level. And everything about the Jags feels like you're upping the difficulty level. We highlighted that on the preview show too. There's no run game. There's no screen game. There's no easy with the Jags offense. 
So you pretty much are asking the quarterback to hit these tight window throws in the 15 to 25 yard range. And when you do it, it's like, man, that's pretty. Good job, Trevor. When you don't, it's ugly. <laughs> and it's, it's these last few weeks in Jacksonville. I wonder if they were just like, let's continue to, you know, dial it up, even whether even if it is Trevor Lawrence in there. Because a lot of times teams will go in with two game plans too. We got a Beathard game plan or a Trevor Lawrence game plan. I do wonder how much of this was built for Beathard though, as a guy that you know probably doesn't have doesn't have a lot of experience facing the blitz, right? He's the backup. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think you're right. It's probably applicable to both, and this is just the game plan. Sixty-one percent of the time, Trevor Lawrence was blitzed, um, and it went bad for for Tamp or for Jacksonville, like the Bucks. It worked. They were able to destroy him. Um, Baker Mayfield on the other side had another pretty good game. Baker's going to be a fascinating offseason decision for them. I, I mean, think he's a buck next year. I mean, if they win this yeah. game against the Saints, he's But he's what is on that contract? Because he's getting paid nothing this year. I mean, he's on a $4 million contract. He's getting paid bad backup money. Yeah, oh, like I know. They, that's how bad his career went since leaving Cleveland is they went, it went from yeah, he could probably be a pretty good option starting in Carolina to you're going to get take $4 million and we're probably going to start you, but you still don't deserve any more than that. That's how bad you've been the last like year and a half. Yeah. That's basically the, the decision they gave him. And he went, yeah, cool. Sounds good. They're on an absolute run right now. I mean, last week was one of the best games Baker Mayfield has ever played. Again, it was against the Packers. Right. There was a lot of free yards in there and what have you. But he was throwing the ball unbelievably. And he did it again in this game, and he's playing with incredible confidence. And you know, Dave Canales coming in, you could kind of tell early in the season, Canales was doing a good job in his first year as offensive coordinator for the Bucs. And then there was a lull in the middle of the season, and it's like, all right, there's, Canales can only do so much because they're still, they're still dealing with a, maybe a top-heavy group of receivers, and the running game was unable to get going. They've started to click, man, and they've started to, you know, they feed Mike Evans. Chris Godwin has really stepped up in recent weeks. And then Canales will start getting, you know, he'll have a couple plays a game where, it, like, it's him, right? He's schemed up some nice screen touchdowns and the seam to Rashad White. So it's all starting to kind of come together. And I think the bottom line for Canales is to get Baker Mayfield to play confident. Whatever he's done, right? Because we saw Mayfield as a rookie just be like, all right, I'm Baker Mayfield. I'm the first overall pick. I'm confident. And then yeah. 2019, he's over there like, oh, Craig Robinson's my left tackle. i got to get rid of the ball. Whatever Canales has done, forget the play calling, forget the scheme or whatever. He's got Baker Mayfield playing confident to where he gets, hits the top of his drop and he will rip the post. He'll rip the out, whatever it is. And Mayfield can do that. Hmm. Great velocity. And he's playing with such confidence this year. And I think it's all started to come together. In addition to the play calling, in addition to getting more playmakers involved and getting Chris Godwin playing to the level that he can. At that, and, and getting the run game going. And that's why the Bucks are hot right now. Offense is cooking, and they've got the NFC South in their sights. Yeah, I mean, Baker Mayfield's been playing really well for them. It is it is an interesting dynamic with him because I think his confidence probably did fall apart in the NFL, but which is unusual because you would have assumed that was a fairly bulletproof part of his nature given his backstory in college, right? Like he'd been a walk-on multiple times winning starting jobs and then going on to absolutely dominate. You would think anybody that does that and it's like, I don't care. I'll go, I'll just go walk on the next team and do it again. Like anyone that has that level of self-belief, it feels like they shouldn't have had it completely fall apart in the NFL. When let's face it, he played reasonably well for periods. So it's not even as if you show up. Like Drew Locke gave that interview after his game where he sort of said, 
like his confidence fell apart. Like yeah. he went from big man on campus, great college player, albeit at a you know lower-ish level than some of these other guys, um, and then got to the NFL, had been not good, and he was sort of asking himself, man, can I, can I do it at this level? Baker, A, I would have said, had a higher self-confidence level beginning, to begin with, and B, there's at least evidence that he can do it at this level. So it seems unusual to me that that guy would suffer a crisis of confidence. Uh, and maybe that's not what happened, but there's definitely something to, I think Baker Mayfield plays at his best when he is in, in a bulletproof mental point uh, like state where he just goes out there, it's him against the world, like he's feeling it and just crushes people and has fun while doing it. Like that was his college career, that was early in his Browns career, and that's where he is right now because the Bucks' offense still isn't in the best pl place in the world. Like the offensive line is not what it was when Tom Brady was winning a Super Bowl. It's not, you know, it's not perfect. And yet he's still playing really well, still playing well under pressure, still playing well on third downs. Like this is a this is pretty close to as good a version of Baker Mayfield as you get. Yeah, and and again, I think you're right, man. I mean, I had I had mentioned the run game getting going, not necessarily in this game. I'm saying like in recent weeks, but in this game when they were in third and longs and they needed big plays, they're they're it's just a really good mix of the screen game's been outstanding the last couple of weeks. They're creating downfield throws. Baker's hitting big time throws and you know ripping ripping the ball down the field 15 to 25 yards in that range. Um, so it's coming together, and they're headed for the Saints next week, who are reeling and. Um, you know, Saints in Tampa has been a thing the last couple of years, but does that even matter? Does that is that still a thing now? You know, it, it's going to be a good one, I think, next week for Jacksonville. Again, every team in the top the AFC South is sitting there at eight and seven. Jags have the Panthers next week, um, so it's not all lost, but they get they they got some stuff to figure out with a, a banged up Trevor Lawrence and an offense that just um, again, there's just not a lot of easy for the Jags offense right now. I mean, when you're considering they were they were there with the Ravens battling for the number one seed a couple of weeks ago. And Just now, four weeks ago. Right, and now they're clinging on for the playoffs. It's not great. No. Um, so, anything else on this game? No, we're done with this game. Congrats have, to Devin White. Very Devin good game White. for Devin White. Absolutely. I have a second update on the turnover the plays thing. Uh, only three players also had eight. So the seven from from Nick Mullins this week is one of the seven tied for seventh. Right, is one of the most seven egregious games in in PFF history in terms of turnover he plays in can a I single get, game. Can I get the years? So, the let's do the eight ones first. We'll fire through those. 2015 conference championship. Oh, that was Carson Palmer. Injured eight. Carson Palmer. Yeah. Wrecked thumb was it? Yeah. Thumb or finger. Carson Palmer. They were playing eight. from behind, and he's just chucking yeah, it. Eight turnover-worthy plays in, a, in an NFC championship Ruined his game. grade that year. Disaster. Ruined his grade. That took him, yeah, he was like MVP that year, and that took him down like after the for the Stevenson and stuff, end of year 101. Yeah. Like that dropped him to like 15 He went spaces. from like a 92 to like an 88 <laughs> Horrendous. or Horrendous. Whatever it was. Uh, 2007. 2007. Um, there were some bad teams that year. Cleo Lemon. No, have a no. Game? we are talking the most archetypal. Kurt Warner? The most archetypal gunslinger in NFL history. Well, Jameis. No, Brett Favre. Oh, Favre. Brett yeah, Favre yeah. had an eight turnover-worthy play in 07. In 07. Um, it's last year with the Packers. Week six. And then Mark Sanchez, 2010. I saw somebody mention Sanchez in the chat. 
Yeah. 2010, Mark Sanchez. So you got two guys left to get nine, that had nine. Can I get the seasons? Seasons. 2006, both of them, in fact. Within two weeks of each other. In 06? Yep. All right. I'll be thinking about it. Percolating I'll in the background. The table yeah, too. In the I gotta stop brain. hitting the table. We got one more four o'clock game to discuss from Christmas Eve. Miami Dolphins twenty-two, Dallas Cowboys twenty. Dolphins move to eleven and four. Cowboys fall to ten and five. This was a fun one, man. This was like a lot of times people think the best game is the the thirty to twenty-seven or the forty to thirty-seven. Those types of games, twenty-two to twenty. Mm. But it's just a really good back and forth game between two high-level teams, you know. Yeah, and what looked early like it might be a shootout, you know? Like Dallas moved the ball early. Miami um, went for it on fourth and goal. Now they failed, but they went for it on fourth and goal down at the five, suggesting that they thought it would be a shootout as well. Yeah. Like we need touchdowns, not field goals for this game. And it wasn't. Like they, they neither team sort of ran away with it uh, offensively. Um, Miami's pass rush really started getting after Dak Prescott. They were without Tyron Smith, so you know left tackle was a problem in the game. But, yeah, it was a fun game. Um, so big play in this one. We've got <laughs> Dallas uh, scores the, was the first touchdown. Yeah, they go up 7-3, 49-yarder to C.D. Lamb. And uh, there was some talk before the week about Jalen Ramsey. Should he be shadowing C.D. Lamb? It's really not a Vic Fangio thing to do. Mm. Um, they've played with a, a little bit, but a lot of the, the Fangio tree generally doesn't like to do that because they're about too high structure and disguising within that. And you, you lose some of that structure when you start shadowing. But C.D. Lamb was in the slot and gets matched up with Deshaun Elliott against the Blitz and just runs away from the defense for the 49-yarder. So that kicked off the – that was the first touchdown. And that was after – so Dallas had fumbled at the goal line. Yeah. Like they, they had gone down the field and then couldn't even – give the fullback the ball, like just couldn't exchange, like couldn't hand it off, uh, fumble the ball away. Miami gets it. Um, and he would have been in, like if they just executed the handoff, yeah. he was in, right? Right. And that, I mean, you look at the end of the game, it's like, uh-oh, <laughs> yeah. one of the first plays in the game it sends, ends up determining the outcome of this thing. Yeah, I mean, then you get, you get into the fourth quarter. Miami's up 19 to 10. Dallas kicks a field goal to make it 19 to 13. So you get that, I mean, the ominous uh, six-point lead, right? You know, yeah. touchdown touchdown wins it um Dak and the Cowboys go 17 plays for 69 yards um and they had a, they had a fourth and two uh, holding call to prolong the the drive but Dak eventually hits Brandon Cooks for the eight yard touchdown to go up 20 to 19 which set up Miami in about a three minute drill basically for the game-winning field goal they convert a couple third downs including a really key third and two yeah screen to Tyreek well, there's a third and three to Tyreek screen and then a third and two run to Jeff Wilson. Yeah. Um, where it was like, look, Dallas's run defense, they got smoked the week before against Buffalo. Mm -hmm. They were much better in this game. But when they needed it, linebackers out of position, Mozzie Smith moved off the ball. They needed it on third and two. They needed this stop. Miami gets the first down. They basically run the clock till two seconds and kick the game-winning field goal to, uh, to seal the deal. Yeah, the Dallas defense just couldn't stop Miami on that final drive where they needed to. And, you know... We, we gave Dan Quinn a lot of praise uh, in recent podcasts for all the adjusting and all the making changes and consistently evolving this defense. Well, now there have been problems on this defense for a couple of weeks, and whatever adjustments are being made haven't had enough of an impact yet. They've been exposed in back-to-back -back weeks against some pretty good teams. Um, but going back, like it was only 7-3 to three when Miami went for it on that fourth and goal down by the five. 
But before that, we had had Dallas marching right down the field and then fumbling at the goal line. Miami had been inches away from a two at a Tyreek bomb touchdown. Like he lined up, was it a slot fade or was it just a, a fade from the outside? But either way, Tua left it just a bit too far outside so that Tyreek couldn't quite adjust back over his shoulder and bring it in. But the cornerback had kind of gone to undercut it. And because it was thrown outside, the corner had like taken himself out of the play. If he comes up with that, not only is it a bomb wherever the catch point was, but he's probably taken it that distance for a touchdown. So you have missed touchdown there, missed touchdown previously. Then C.D. Lamb does that classic C.D. Lamb catch and run touchdown. And then Miami down at the goal line. So they're looking at that saying, we could have had four touchdown drives in the first couple of minutes. This is going to be a high-scoring game. We need to go for it on fourth and five. And then the game just kind of cooled off from that point. You're talking about that first Tyreek Hill deep ball that kind of like awkwardly hit his hands? Yeah. Yeah. Just saying. Yeah, then he came, Then Tua came back with a 50-yarder to Waddle right, right after. Like Tua drop looked like two dimes early. I think that first one do you was think thrown just too far outside. think so? Yeah. Um, I think he could have potentially caught it, but that was thrown outside where it needed to be. I have to say, like when um, – you know, Tua and Dak, they they both made some big plays, left some on the table, missed some throws. Um, when Tua's on, and again, he's going to be tested a ton these next couple weeks, Ravens and Dolphins. Dallas was a test here. But when he's on, man, that offense, just the the speed at which they run it, it is interesting, right? Because it's, it's a lot different than Purdy in the Niners. It looks different, you know? Uh, Purdy's a little bit longer developing. Yeah. And, um, like two is just throwing to space. Yeah, well, they very so very early. It's like the opposite end of the like the strength spectrum that the so Brock Purdy's biggest um, asset that he brings to that 49ers offense is actually the late in the down creativity and the being able to pull a play out of nothing when the when the offense itself is broken down. Like he can take what's being given to him and then he adds a layer on top of that that isn't there in the offense. Tua. His biggest strength is actually I'm going to supercharge what the offense is already doing and just hit like hit the play so early that those guys have so much space to run into and maximize that. Like I'm going to I'm going to maximize what the offense is giving to me, but I'm not going to add much to it on the back end. Right. Whereas Purdy is doing a pretty good, like a really good job of the first part and then adding a layer at the back end and they're getting to sort of similar places through radically different approaches it, but i'm saying even when they're working through progressions it's like two is going to get to read two and three yeah he's faster super, than anybody super fast pretty much purdy is like this combination of like patient he's just patient with it too right he's like oh I'm, you know one to two to three i'll get to three when i when i get there and then i'll you know throw this pinpoint throw most of the time because of course he was horrible last night and three yeah. four picks um but it's just it's just interesting seeing it same system run differently and with different style players Right, Miami's just pure burners, and the, the Niners have all sorts of just different style mismatch weapons. Um, real impressive win by Miami. Okay, so coming in, both of these teams had this question of beating good teams and the whole thing. Um, Dallas still has that question about beating good teams on the road, and Miami checkbox. Right, they 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 they, they handled this one, but Ravens and Bills. Now coming up for the Dolphins, who have the number one seed in sight. If they beat Baltimore, if they win out, Miami's the number one seed. So they've got that opportunity here. Yeah, I mean, it was a big game for both teams. Obviously, Miami kind of get the narrative part of getting the win at the end. I, I sort of feel like 
Like Dallas shouldn't, I don't think that this should necessarily sort of fall into the same bucket of, well, Dallas can't get it done. I mean, yeah. they, they were really close. They did take the lead. You know, they, they, they made it so that Miami had to win at the very death, and that was the difference. But, like, it showed that they can do this against a really good team still, even if they didn't quite. That's why I'm saying it, was like, it did feel like I just – I thought Baltimore-San Francisco would feel more like a heavyweight battle back and forth. This Dallas-Miami game felt like that. They both, they both engineered fourth-quarter comeback drives. The Dolphins just had the ball last, right? And they, and they did it, man. Impressive win by Miami. And, yeah, I, I wouldn't be kicking myself if I'm the Cowboys. Right. It certainly hurts, though. They're 10-5 and five now. Um, they'll be, they're a game behind Philadelphia in the division. They had an opportunity to be, you know – four-way tie atop the NFC as far as record goes. Um, so it does look like we're getting closer and closer. Dallas has Detroit this week, another huge one. Um, but Dallas against the NFC South is uh, more and more likely every single week. And like I said, Miami has a chance at that number one seed if they can win out. All right, Christmas Eve night. New England Patriots 26, Denver Broncos 23. Mm. You know, I was hoping just to spend some time with the family. You know, enjoy Christmas Eve. Have a nice, boring game. And then yeah. it gets crazy in the fourth quarter. It got crazy. Uh, New England was up 23-7. to seven. Um, It was 16-7. to seven. It was a slow start. You know, felt like, a, felt like the expectation of this game. A couple not-so-great offenses. Some defenses playing better. And then uh, Marvin Mims just muffs the kick return. And that's an easy touchdown for New England. <laughs> To and, go up twenty three to seven, they scored two touchdowns within seconds of each other to go up twenty three seven. But Denver made a comeback, and then um, Bailey Zappi leads a game winning drive for the field goal twenty six twenty three. Yeah, and this is one of those games where obviously it's it's reductive to basically say Bailey Zappi played well, therefore it became a game. But it's kind of what happened, and yet it started off like was it? It was the very first play of the game. Bailey Zappi has like an absolute nightmare, fumbles it away immediate Denver turnover like and okay it's his left guard just gets tossed to the floor so that's not great you know so there's only so much to which you could say well look that's Zappi's fault but his left guard got tossed to the floor so early and so conclusively in the play that Zappi has like two seconds to watch the large defensive tackle slowly running in his direction as he's trying to find somewhere to go with the ball and ends up holding on to it so long that what was just a bad play turns into a catastrophe. But you're like, that's the Patriots this season. That's Bailey Zappi. Like, standard fare. This is what we expect. Perfect start to the game. You know, Denver can win this comfortably, and then we can all move on with Christmas. And then from that point on, Bailey Zappi go, no, I'm going to play well now. From now on, only good things. And turn this into a really good game. Yeah, I mean, look... I want to talk about the specifics in the game a little bit because, you know, there was some, it was a fascinating game as far as like the comeback and everything. Um, Denver being down 23 to seven, and then they kind of kicked into gear offensively and um, get back to 23 to 15. They had to hit two two point conversions, right? When you're down 16, yeah. it's the two touchdowns and the two two point conversions. They got both of them. No margin for error. Um, so it's 23 23. And then it looks like we might be going to overtime here. And without Cortland Sutton, who'd been yeah. like the guy that was making all the big plays for them in the past game. Like one of the things here, Denver's trying to execute this comeback. Russ sort of looking more like old old school Russell Wilson. Be like, who was he throwing to? I mean, previously this season, the only guy that he's been that's been on his wavelength making these plays has been Cortland Sutton, 
Sutton got hurt and is not in the game, you're like, where has Jerry Judy been? You know, Marvin Mims, we've only seen him putting the ball on the ground in the return game. Like, there's nobody making plays for them. There's nobody making plays. They still make the comeback. Um, now, Denver did have an opportunity. You know, so they, then they make a stop. It's tied up. They make a stop. But then Denver goes three and out, gives the ball back to New England with 58 seconds left. And New England just, you know, runs the ball for six yards. But they run the ball with 58 seconds left. This is classic Belichick, right? It's like, oh, we'll go to overtime. Love playing overtime. Love going to overtime, Bill. Hmm. So I can take the wind. It's his favorite thing to do. Take the wind. Um, then they run the ball again, setting up third and three with 47 seconds left. And I don't know if Zappi checked out of a run. He checked into something, though, and he chucks it up to Devontae Parker for 27 yards to pretty much put them, to put them on the fringe of field goal range. And that's the throw of the game. A um, couple more short passes they get within somewhat range. You had Chad Ryland over here, the rookie kicker who's missing extra point level plays. Mm. Bill Belichick's calling him out on it. Kicks a game-winning 56-yarder um, to win on Christmas Eve. So I think the um, the again the fallout from this I think is the the more fascinating story. Denver goes from like this mid-season upstart, you know, watch out for Denver. They're figuring it out. Sean Payton, Russell Wilson, to maybe the whole thing's over. Well, there's a bunch of teams this year that it, that like dug themselves such a deep hole to start the year. Yeah. that you don't have any margin for error and you sort of end up throwing it away with a stupid game somewhere because those just happen in the NFL. Like, that's the, that's the kind of tragedy about this. You can get your season on track. Like, the best teams in the game ever tend to lose a game somewhere, right? Yeah, of course. You know, like the... Teams the, are losing... Good teams are losing every single week right now. Like, so many of those, like, 15-1 and one teams... You know, there's a reason nobody had gone undefeated other than the 72 Dolphins and then eventually the, the, the 07 Patriots until that, you know, Super Bowl. But it's like you tend to lose one somewhere, right? You just have a bad game, weird things happen, the ball bounces in the other direction, and some, somewhere along the road you lose a game that you should win. Well, that is even more true with teams that aren't that great to begin with. And so if you dig yourself a giant hole and you need to, like, win out over six, seven games – the chances are you're not going to do it. Because even if you do get yourself back on track and you're better than you were earlier in the season, there's going to be one game somewhere along the way. And this was one. Like, it's not that the Patriots were necessarily just way better than Denver. Like, the Patriots score and then Mims kick return fumble and now there's another score. And that just went immediately from pretty close game with a touchdown gone the other team to now it's 23-7. Like, well, that game just got away from us in 10 seconds. Like, that's what happened here. And then Denver just couldn't drag that back. Yeah, it was it was too big of a hole for the Broncos. Absolutely. Um, again, I think the uh, first off, shout out to Christian Barmore with a Beast huge game in this game. Yeah, absolutely dominant for the Patriots at defensive tackle. Now the fallout here. Couple things here. New England goes from picking potentially second and having that quarterback decision to now technically they're fourth behind Washington. Um, so New England. Could have that Drake May, Caleb Williams option now gone um, and have to go, you know, figure out their next situation. I, I don't think they're going to build around Bailey Zappi. I don't think it's going to be Bailey Zappi to Marvin Harrison Jr. No. Um, it is actually interesting because you've got some New England media who is like, oh, they should have gone to Zappi a lot earlier and blah, 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 blah. And it's like they're averaging like 16 points a game with Zappi as quarterback. They got shut out just three weeks ago. Um, so it's not like it's just better than it was for most of the season with Mac Jones, but it's not like. It's not like he's the guy, I don't think, going forward. 
So the quarterback stuff in New England potentially miss out on one of those guys. And then for Denver, you know, are the last two weeks the nail in the coffin for the Russell Wilson era for the Broncos? Where if they had, you know, Detroit was bad. I mean, that pulling that upset would have been a struggle, but they should have beat, won this game on paper. They were favored by almost a, a touchdown or by six and a half. So this could be the end of uh, Russell Wilson, Sean Payton. See what happens going forward there. Good? Mm-hmm. No more use for this game. Let's go to Christmas Day. Las Vegas Raiders 20, Kansas City Chiefs 14. You want to take a guess at the uh, turnover-worthy plays before we get to this one? I'll okay, 2006. Guessing. Damon Heward. No. Um, who else was – Aaron Brooks wasn't around at that point. No. These are at least one of them is a player that's absolutely belongs in this spectrum, and then the other one is you know makes sense. Rex Grossman. There you go. Rex Grossman had one. Rex was, that, Grossman. was that the Arizona game? It was a different. Uh, one. I don't know. Week nine. We had Rex Grossman, two thousand six. People were asking about Nathan Peterman because he threw five actual interceptions in a game. He only had three turnover-worthy plays of his five. Like he had, in addition to three of the worst interceptions yeah. of all time, he got unlucky with a couple of interceptions in that game. It was last night's Brock Purdy. Like, was there bad stuff? Yes. Yeah. Was there also some bad bounces? Right. Yes. And it just like he got disproportionately unlucky in that game, as opposed to it was the worst quarterback game of all time, and that resulted in the standard sort of seventy-five percent turnover-worthy play to interception ratio. Uh, do you want to give me the last one? Okay. Uh, 2006, Week 11, Eli Manning. Eli? Nine okay, turnover-worthy plays. Wow. I mean, remember, Eli was we – were, we comped Eli to Jameis a lot. It's true. We did. Like, Eli's career tends to get whitewashed a little bit because he ended up with the two rings and the, pl- the postseason yeah. a couple of times was amazing. Eli had a lot of Jameis in him. Well, that's why my Jameis takes are in response to right. what I saw from Eli Manning. Yeah. Right? That's why I still believe there's – there's something in there. Mm-hmm. For, start Jameis this week against the Bucks. Start Jameis. Jameis revenge game. All right, let's get to Christmas Day. Kansas City Chiefs. I'm sorry. Reset for social. Let's go to Christmas Day. Las Vegas Raiders 20. Kansas City Chiefs 14. Raiders move to 7-8 and eight here, pulling the upset in Kansas City. Uh, Chiefs fall to 9-6. and six. There's a lot to discuss here. Mm. Um Maybe the worst game. I mean, this has to be the worst game of Patrick Mahomes' career. Uh, the production has been down. <laughs> Not if you listen to Tony Romo. <laughs> Romo did have a knack for maybe blaming the receivers on absolutely everything, even though it wasn't really on them. Um, Mahomes' production has certainly been down this year. We know that. Every every stat has been down. And he had actually been playing well these last few weeks, right? Last week he threw a pass right off Kadarius Tony's hands for an interception, mm-hmm. and we would – Say, hey, look, these aren't really on him. This is for the first time in Mahomes' career. He's playing better than the stats. Yeah. But this game was really bad across the board. The Raiders did not complete a pass after the first quarter. Aiden O'Connell, who finished 9 for 21, didn't complete a pass after the first quarter. And they scored two defensive touchdowns on back-to-back plays in the second quarter. And that was the difference in the game. So the Raiders' offense scored six points plus a two-point conversion if you want to give them credit for that. And the Chiefs offense, well, they scored 14, but also gave 14. The last time a team won a game without completing a pass after the first quarter was 2000. Jeez. I thought you were going to say back in the 20s when the you know sidewinders were playing no. whoever. Um, 
So a lot of records in this game. Obviously that one. Then this is the first rookie quarterback to beat Patrick Mahomes. It's also the first time Patrick Mahomes has lost in the division. In December. after In November, December. In November, December. Right. Um, so crazy run of place. This was the... This was the game, though. Like, Patrick Mahomes has not been the problem this year at all, pretty much. He was in this game. Like, that's those two things can coexist. Like, the dynamic in this game was different to the dynamic of the Chiefs season. It was the same insofar as they kept making mistakes across the board, and they've been doing that all the way through the year. What was different is that Mahomes added to them this year. Like, previously, Mahomes has been doing sterling work, playing basically the way Mahomes has always played, and everybody else has been letting him down. This game, he added to the pile, and that's why they lost to the Raiders instead of somehow found a way to win a game that just left bad feels because everybody else was making mistakes. The first uh, big mistake was they set up, they have Isaiah Pacheco take the direct snap, mm-hmm. and Mahomes is playing running back, and they do this all the time, the trickeration. That's the thing. Like people it, was were... a, it was a throwback pass. Now, they, did, they often do this in the red zone. Yeah. They did this in their own territory. Yeah. And, um, Mahomes did not handle – I mean, I think Pacheco put it in his gut, and Mahomes, who's a quarterback, right. did not do a good job on the exchange receiving the handoff. Ball hits the turf, and uh, Bilal Nicholas picks it up, runs into the end zone for the touchdown. Now, uh, Nichols. Big six. So Nichols – it should have been Nicholas because it was Christmas. Nichols, Bilal Nichols, wins the uh, MVP, the Nickelodeon. Oh, did he? I didn't yes. see any of the uh, the Nickelodeon elements, so you'll and have to bring me up to speed. I don't want to say that it was staged or anything, but they had a vote. And the voting into the third quarter was Nichols and then Mahomes, then Kelsey okay. in the voting. And I don't want to say that, like, you know, the people weren't really watching the game. They were just clicking Mahomes and Kelsey. <laughs> it was Kelsey second, Mahomes third. But I think they did a nice job. Making, like, you can't hand it to Kelsey or anything like that after you lose <laughs> or you Mahomes imagine, in his worst game. Can you imagine dragging Mahomes up to take that award after that game? They probably should have slimed him. Didn't they be do honest. it before, though? When somebody won one of those off the. Didn't they win they it locked? after the. Uh, yeah, after a defeat and they had to drag him up and take the crappy Nickelodeon? Oh, oh thing? Dak. I think they gave it to Dak right. or something, but he, like. Kind of played well, because they, they do that. Like in other sports, the man of the match is yeah. comes from the winning team, right? Which can cause some problems late in the game where the game is on the line. And it's like you got to switch it. Normally, you'd sort of yeah. you give the announcement with a couple of minutes to go on the broadcast, right? But if the game is still in jeopardy with a couple of minutes to go, now you're like, oh no, what if what if it goes the other way? And now we got to bring this guy up as man of the match on a losing team. You know, it's, it's not as good. So that was the first big error, um, and then the very next offensive play. Mahomes throws a pick six. Jack Jones with his second straight game yeah. with a pick six. Great play. Stared him in. down on the way into the end zone. Stared him down. And then gave a bait and switch to some poor kid in the end zone. That's a bit much. Like, you know, it's a kid. Give him the ball. Good for Jack Jones. Good for it's Jack the Raiders. Jones. Just bringing misery to children. What do you think Antonio Pierce probably, whatever you give him extra helmet stickers or whatever you give out <laughs> if you're the Raiders. Um, so the picks, I mean, that was... That ended up being the difference in the game. That put the Raiders up 17-7. to mm-hmm. And again, in this comeback attempt, the Chiefs could never find any rhythm. The other stat, like Mahomes' raw stat line is not great. 27-44 to for 235. It's 5.3 yards per attempt. Also got sacked four times. But also 85% of his yards came after the catch. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of, again, all season it's been like this. He's got the most, the highest percentage of his yards coming after the catch of any quarterback this season. In this game, it was 85%. It was one busted coverage late for a 40, 45-yarder. 
there's a bunch of screen stuff. I mean, Kelsey had some really nice runs early after the catch. Clyde Edwards-Alaire, some great runs through, run through contact. Yeah. There was no passing attack. Mahomes also ran 10 times for 53 yards. Like, they could not move the ball consistently. So in addition to all that, why is this the worst game for Mahomes? Those two bad plays that we mentioned. But two other dropped interceptions in there as well. And actually, the first turnover where they play fumbled. He just dropped, he threw the ball up in the air, fumbled, and it landed in his hands, and he caught it and recovered it. But um, it was a rough one for the Chiefs' offense across the board. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, that's the thing. I think this is a different dynamic to, to every previous Chiefs games this year because all of the problems that have been there all year were still there, and now you had a couple of new ones, the, mo- the most obvious of which was Patrick Mahomes having maybe the worst game of his career. Um, but also, the offensive line was struggling. Like, Wanya Morris in particular, tackle was just getting wrecked. Malcolm Coons had nine pressures, I think, something like that. Yeah. Morris I, gave up 10. This is a new dynamic as well. Like, remember, since that Super Bowl game where Mahomes had to be Superman and was just getting buried by the Tampa Bay pass rush with a effectively a backup offensive line at that point, they went out of their way to be like, we are going to surround this guy with a great offensive line. That's not going to be a problem again. Well, the interior is still great. Now the tackles aren't. And they're not great to begin with, and now they're hurt. So you've got backups in there. And the backup tackle was a huge issue in this game. Yeah, I, I will give. I want to give the Raiders proper credit. I will give them proper credit in due time um, for their defense. But I want to highlight, uh, Wanye Morris is a third-round rookie. He did go to the Senior Bowl, impressed people at the Senior Bowl. But last year, in the Big 12, had a 73 pass blocking grade for Oklahoma. And he's two years removed from having a 53 pass blocking grade at Tennessee in 2020. He's a couple years removed from that, right? Um, he has not played a ton of football and has not been a great pass protector, even in college. Um, skill, you know, tools guy, whatever. But he's now the left tackle for the Chiefs. And he had, you know, been okay the last couple of weeks, but Morris had a rough game. Um, and I think that might be an issue for the Chiefs. So, again, it's, there's a lot of different issues here. Um, I did see Daniel Jeremiah saying, I've never seen Patrick Mahomes look at the rush like this. I agree, man. Like, he took four sacks where he just didn't have the same pocket awareness that he has or whatever it might be. I wonder if that's – I mean, if is that now a bigger concern in a game where your pass protection does melt down because it's not normal anymore? Like, when he went into that Super Bowl, at least he'd been dealing with a – progressively deteriorating offensive line and be getting used to the fact that it's bad for a while if he's used to an offensive line that's really good now and then one random week it's not is that going to have a disproportionate effect see may but again i think it's it's also the perception of pressure that's just as bad we always reference the baker mayfield season where it was it wasn't the stats it wasn't the pressure itself it was the perception of it i think in that even in that super bowl it was the it wasn't just it wasn't the offensive like it wasn't like the worst offensive line performance in history it was the perception of it it was like i've got my backups out there i have to be superhuman and i think that's what's hitting to mahomes right now is feeling like he has to play superhuman um every single week so he i think he's actually feeling the pressure of everything falling apart around him and then he fell apart yesterday now the raiders deserve so much credit for, I think, what they've done on the defensive side of the ball. Malcolm Kuntz has been excellent this season, rushing opposite Max Crosby. They did a great job. I mean, there's just not a lot of open throws for the Chiefs in this game. The Raiders did a great job on the back end, very disciplined, um, 
force Mahomes to hold the ball. And again, there was no downfield throw opportunities, really. And if there were, you know, Mahomes would miss them. Um, but I cannot – I'm so impressed with, with what the Raiders have done defensively this year because on paper, they should not be that great. Mm. We've said it, we said it in the offseason. It felt like they just don't have the horses on the defensive side of the ball. It looked like Max Crosby, and that was it. And they needed development from a whole bunch of other players. Their linebackers have played much better. Spillane's running around making plays, you know, as Antonio Pierce loves. I'm just saying the Raiders' defense, with with uh, with guys coming off of some bad seasons last year, have been very impressive this year. Yeah, um, and obviously the last couple of weeks have shown like Jack Jones can be a huge addition to this team. I mean, a guy who was not gotten rid of because of play it was gotten rid of because of you know off-field issues apparently now he's gone to las vegas so this might just be a ticking time bomb that he's is very talented right but the point being yes jack jones has demonstrated already in his nfl career that he can be a big time playmaker and has been for the last couple of weeks for this team so if they can keep him together that's a huge addition now you've gone from having like one viable half decent corner to you found a second one you've got other people making plays yeah their defense has been way better than we expected it to be and improving like it's getting better their defense feels a lot like their offensive line did last year where going into the year you're like this is a terrible unit and then it just consistently got better all the way through the year and by the end of the season you're like this is actually a pretty good group yeah it's it's been really impressive one last thing to to put a bow on this right when the when the favorite starts to come back, the Chiefs scored a touchdown late to make it twenty to fourteen, and it was, you know, in the Mahomes era, you picture this world where if they just get a stop, Mahomes has the ball one more time, down six with an opportunity for a touchdown to win it, and you could they could have escaped with a win in a game where they played horrendous, but instead it was the Raiders' rushing attack mm. um, that shut it down. Zamir White with a couple big runs late, um, a long run just to. Uh, just to give them some breathing room, but it still wasn't over. They still he had a 43 yarder just to get into Kansas City territory, but they still had to run a few more plays before the two minute warning. And the Raiders did it, man. And and again, for, I want to do this from both perspectives. Impressive that the Raiders did it. It's been the Chiefs' Achilles' heel this year. In when they've needed to stop the run, they have not been good. They have right. one of the lowest EPAs per, per play allowed. The Chiefs' defense has been outstanding this year. But against the run, they've shown a weakness, and it showed up again, I think, in this And game. even in this game. I mean, Devontae Adams was a non-factor in the game. He got targeted six times, I yeah. think, came up with one catch. Now, one of them, he definitely should have come up with another one. But the point being, they effectively shut down Devontae Adams and yet couldn't stop the run when they needed to. Like, that, they, they were very good in some areas, but couldn't stop them in the most important way when they needed to late in the game. So what does this all mean? Uh, Chiefs are out of the running for the number one overall seed. Um, they, they have no competitors, really, for the division in the AFC West. I, I don't even know if the Raiders – Raiders and Broncos are both in second at seven and eight. I don't even know if they win out and the Chiefs lose out if, um, if they win the division. But um, Chiefs have the Bengals and the Chargers the next few weeks. They're still going to get into the playoffs. It's just, again, every single week we say, you're running out of time to fix this stuff, right. <laughs> you know. And it usually shows up come playoff time, all your your regular season weaknesses. So uh, this is a rough one for Kansas City and impressive for the Raiders. And it might be the thing that saves Antonio Pierce's job or gives Antonio Pierce the job, right? They were, Romo and Nance were talking about that before the game. 
a win in Arrowhead in well, December? I mean, at this point, if it doesn't, like, you're literally saying that that the entire time he's doing this is irrelevant if he doesn't get the job off the back of this. Like, you can't put together a better resume from this opportunity yeah. than Antonio Pierce is, is doing right now. So if he comes away from this and you're saying, no, nope, we're going in a different direction, I mean, you're literally saying an interim head coach cannot, from his position, he couldn't have done anything to win this job. Which is, you know, I mean, okay. Even, even me, who doesn't believe in, like, the, I don't know, um, job interview. It clearly doesn't say that he's going to be good if he gets given the job. But, like, at this point, it's a pretty strong case he's building to at least be, de- you know, a finalist to say, let's give him a shot. Again, the most impressive thing to me about the Raiders, I mean, he got them on track and the whole thing, but is the way the defense has played this year. And I don't know how much that's just Pierce being a great motivator, how much that's, you know, Patrick Graham calling plays. Like, I don't know what that is exactly, but they've done a nice job on that side of the ball. And I'd be inclined to maybe keep that together, continue to add pieces there while you're figuring out what the future is at quarterback and on the offensive side of the ball. Like, that's what I'm more intrigued now than I was maybe three or four weeks ago, seeing what Pierce and those guys have done there. So impressive by the Raiders to get to seven and eight here on Christmas Day. Uh, second game was the Philadelphia Eagles 33, New York Giants 25. Um, this was supposed to be the um, – I mean, it was a 12-point spread in this game. It felt like it early on. Eagles get up 20-3, to but the Eagles kept letting the Giants back in or the Giants kept creeping back in, however you want to say it. Boston Scott, sorry. Both of our guys muffing kickoffs here, man, or fumbling kickoffs. Hey, no, no, no. Not Boston's fault. He had his own player run into him. Nope. That's his fumble. He did have his own player run into him. Set the Giants up at the 14-yard line. Did you see the? Did you see like the start of it? Because obviously, like your own player running directly into you, facing you as a kick returner, is generally not what's supposed to happen. It's not how you draw it up, right? So, and it's so unusual. For example, that you tend to say, "I wonder what happened to cause that." You know, that's not something that just happens. How did that materialize? What was the source? What was the origin of that disaster? And when you see it, Isaiah Simmons on the kick coverage team takes his guy and, like, launches him forwards, right, to the point where it, it discombobulated him so much that he, like, span around 360. And then as he's gathering his own balance, once he, like, recovers himself, he's, like, right in front of Boston Scott. Who just <laughs> That's runs the play. Him. That's what I would do. So, would so do. Isaiah Simmons, like, grabs his guy – tosses him towards the kick returner, forces the fumble, and then scoops it up and, and gets the recovery as well. A huge special teams play from Isaiah Simmons. At, and that's how you should do it. Just toss your Throw guy. guys into the returner yeah. every single time. That set the Giants up for – they had a three-play 14-yard drive. That's all they needed to score. And then – so it's 20-10. to 10, And then Jalen Hurts pass. Uh, Dallas Goddard slips. Goes to a, a Dory Jackson for a 76-yard pick six. So a game where the Eagles, you know, should win handily. Uh, Tommy DeVito's been benched and the whole thing. It goes from 20-3 to 3 to 20-18 to 18 pretty quickly here. Mm. And every time the Eagles kept, you know, building a lead, boom, Tyrod Taylor in relief hits Darius Slayton for a 69-yarder. So the Eagles kept, <coughs> however you want to view it, letting the Giants back in or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, but it went down to the wire in this one. Yeah, and even, like, literally the last play, that was kind of reminiscent of that crazy uh, Virginia Tech-Stanford play that Tyrod Taylor – that was a play that made me fall in love with Tyrod Taylor as a quarterback. 
this kind of looked a little bit like it. Back he's dancing around back there. He's waiting, trying to find a guy. And then instead of finding his own receiver in the back of the end zone, he found an eagle instead. That was less of an exciting finish, at least from his perspective. Yeah. But I thought they... Um, he did, though. I mean, this is... Yeah, the, it came down to the very last play, down eight. Right. This is the second time this season where Tyrod Taylor has come in and looked better than the guy he replaced yeah. for the Giants. Like, he, every time he's been on the field for the team, he has improved the situation. It's a... Uh, we, we love to do the A-B analysis and those data points, right? Because Tommy DeVito came in and looked better than Tyrod and Daniel Jones for a stretch of play. Yeah. And you're right. Tyrod came in and looked better than Daniel Jones. They didn't put up a ton of points in those first couple games, but Tyrod looked better than Daniel Jones. And it's not like Daniel Jones has been a disaster for the Giants. He was, he was good last year. They he led a playoff team and played pretty well. So it is this weird balance of the uh, Brian Dable's gotten good play. He's gotten like stretches of decent play out of three different quarterbacks. Nothing great, but stretches of decent play. And you're right, Tyrod, um, in this game, at least elevated the offense a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I thought the Eagles offense looked a lot better. You know, the, the, I, the, the word sleepwalking that I keep using for them, it was, a, it was just a better balanced game, I thought, from the Eagles. Devontae Smith had that long 36-yard touchdown. A.J. Brown had a couple big plays. Jalen Hurts, I thought, overall threw the ball well. Um, th again, the interception was a slip. Yeah. Um, the previous play, I think it was uh, Giants defender got their hands on the ball, but it was, you know, full extension. I don't even think that was uh, – Turnover worthy or like capable of even being intercepted. I thought Hurts threw the ball well. Dallas Goddard got involved. Devontae, AJ Brown. It was a much better all around Eagles effort. Yeah, it, it was still a little bit labored, but it felt like they had the offense when they needed it. Yeah. You know, like every time the Giants kind of pulled their way back into the game and Philadelphia was like, uh oh, it's gotten close again. And then the Eagles would have a drive and remind Is that you. What they do? Is that what like no. feels so uncomfortable about the Eagles? I think, I mean, that's. It's what they have done sometimes, but I think a lot of the season it's just been bad. But yeah. this was a game where there was a difference. Like they, they had it when they actually had big drives that they needed to get it done. And it was just other times where it looked a little bit iffy. But, you know, you take that pick six out of this game and actually it would look like a pretty clean Eagles performance. Like, you know. I mean, both of those. It was a 14-play touchdown drive and a pick six. Yeah. For the, for the Giants that, that really got them back into the game here. Um, I don't have much else on this one. Anything else on this one? Uh, no, not really. Other than the, I mean, the Cutlets thing is probably, Hassan Reddick was great this game, actually. But, yeah, the Cutlets may be it. Maybe the end of Cutlets. It could be it. That's why it, 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 A wild ride. That, I mean, genuine people compared that to, to Lynn Sanity, you know, the Jeremy Lynn thing. Where finishing it, in a similar manner. Right. And similar period of time right it's like this was really fun for a few weeks and then that's yeah. it no more of that bye-bye tommy's gonna be coaching in a couple of years uh, somebody <laughs> what was it i forget there was a bunch of tweets about it obviously uh somebody was saying not coaching tommy's gonna be like owning a like a car dealership in jersey somewhere oh, in geez. in a couple of weeks oh, you know it's gonna be a cutlet shop and look Fair Dude, play to Tommy. You got to keep going like, there's still a little momentum right right at the back of me you got tommy's cutlets there were people trying to be like well you see uh the real reason he got benched is he spent the last couple of weeks brand building instead of you know focused on the football hey, come on I, I mean chances are he was just going to regress back into tommy devito who yeah. is a mid-tier big 10 quarterback it's like earlier we were saying like there's a lot there's never been more quarterbacks that can go out there and play two or three games looking pretty useful 
but then eventually the wheels are going to fall off. All right. So what does it mean? Goes back to what does it mean? Let's start with the Giants. They're they're currently picking fifth. They're the uh, the highest picking of the five and ten teams: Giants, Chargers, and Titans. According to Tankathon, I've seen that other ways too, where the Titans are picking fifth. We'll sort all that stuff out. Either way, they're in the top seven. I believe right Tankathon now. has the correct like tiebreaker things. Well, the person I saw post the Titans at five is Field Yates, Ooh. and uh, Fields is one of those guys. Good tweeter. Very good tweeter. Mm. Very positive. Knows how to get the, uh, you know, the interaction. So if you want to question Field. Well, he's an ESPN man, right? Yeah. And I, I'm not directly questioning ESPN, but I am saying that their playoff predicting machine doesn't even work right now. So, Well, they did say the Celtics had a 97% chance to beat the Heat. That too. Last year, so. <laughs> There's some questionable numbers that come from I mean, ESPN I've got some friends times. over at ESPN Analytics again. I don't, I don't want to call them out. I'm just no. saying seen some numbers before mm. um, and for the Eagles again they're, they're sitting there atop the NFC in that three-way tie 11 and fours currently the number two seed the Niners loss opens up you know some opportunity here for the Eagles if the Niners slip up one more time there's still a chance that the Eagles get the bye um, and the Eagles have to play the Cardinals and then the Giants again these next couple weeks so there should be that path to 13 and four see what happens with the Niners and the Lions the other two 11 and four teams and a game up on Dallas in the East for the Eagles. So they can clinch next week with some stuff. Yeah, no more use for that game. Let's go Sunday night football. Baltimore Ravens. No, Monday night football. Sorry. Last night was Monday. Baltimore Ravens, 33. San Francisco 49ers, 19. Ravens, the sole 12-win team in the NFL right now, beating the 49ers in an absolute statement game for Baltimore. Uh, odd odd beginning in this one. Lamar Jackson with the safety after running into the umpire. Yes. In the end zone. I feel like that's ridiculous. Yeah. Don't you feel that if the ref materially like ruins a play, we should just do it over? Like oh, repeat down? The ref tripped the guy in the end zone. Let's repeat this down one was rather like, than give up a two point swing. This one was clear as day. However, like I if you make a rule on that, every pass, you remember when the umpire was in the old position, like they do in the two-minute drill, the passes like off the umpires and stuff like that, would you like redo all those plays? There's a lot you can... But why not? That. I mean, every other game I can think of has the basic sort of thing that if you hit the ref or if the ref like interferes with the play, you just sort of stop and restart. Like you don't say, no, the ref's just an obstacle at random in the middle of the field. And if you run over him, that's your fault. I think if a, can't, if a like, batted ball hits an umpire in baseball, I think it'd be, it's a hit. It's a dead ball hit. Everybody moves up one base. It's yeah. kind of messed up for the pitcher. <laughs> um, anyway, San Francisco got up 5 nothing, and then it was all Ravens from there, man. They just, um, they just kept scoring. I think they scored on seven straight drives between field goals and touchdowns. Eventually get up 33-12. to um, As we mentioned, absolute statement game. And Brock Purdy on the other side, the first interception, really bad. Mm. to Kyle Hamilton in the end zone some other batted passes and whatever but uh, the ended up we'll talk about that 18 of 32 for 255 for Purdy still eight yards per attempt but four interceptions that's what stands out and that's the uh, the talk today yeah um, I mean so this was the game this ended up being the game where a team did put the 49ers offense in a double digit hole and took them out of the game script that they usually thrive in and basically said all right manufacture that comeback that you're not able to come back from ever and they still weren't able to do it 
And in fact, they just kept digging. And it took a while to get there, though. I mean, yeah. it was the nine, the the Ravens were uh, the Ravens were up thirteen to five. Niners come back, score a touchdown. It's thirteen to twelve. Baltimore gets the field goal just before the half. It was sixteen to twelve at the half. Baltimore. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. They did. It couldn't have gone much worse for the 49ers in the first half, and they were still only down by four going in. Right? And you're like, well, if you're at Baltimore, sure you feel great relative to like how you, this game could have gone going into it. But you can't feel great about, like, we have been crushing this in the first half other than that uh, safety, and we're still only up four against a team who can absolutely wreck shop at any given moment. That's a little bit precarious. And then it ended up not going. And then it did actually get much worse for the uh, 49ers. So, yeah, early in the second half, that was one of the next interceptions, right? Uh, Purdy throws another interception. And the very next play, Lamar Jackson to Zay Flowers for a touchdown. I'm sorry, that was um, back-to-back plays. What happened here? Well, this was, but the the reason sorry the Raven the Raven scored, and then on, on the very first play from scrimmage, that Purdy throws another interception, and then it's a Zay Flowers touchdown. Like the Ravens scored two touchdowns within like 20 seconds of each other. Yeah, and the reason it was so catastrophic for the 49ers is because so. Brock Purdy was making some bad mistakes, but he was also getting unlucky. And every time he got unlucky, it ended up in a turnover. Like, he, had, he threw one, like the batted pass that ends up not just being batted, but, but it like, he throws a batted, it throws a ball that gets batted by the guy blitzing right at him, right? That happens fairly regularly, and usually that ball goes nowhere. If it's going to get picked off, it tends to get picked off by like a defensive lineman somewhere in the middle. It like cleared the pocket and went all the way to the guy the other side who was blitzing off the other edge and ended up landing in uh was it marlon humphrey's hands yeah that i've never seen that before a guy bat it on one like blitz db blitz off one side purdy's head right db blitz off one side of the line ends up batting a ball and getting caught by the db blitz on the other side of the line i don't think i've ever seen that happen um so he got unlucky in a bunch of plays in addition to being bad on a couple and you add all those together and it's like you just gave them way too many possessions to be able to crawl out of and then they end up in that double digit deficit where the 49ers have never come back and yeah. they threw that stat up again on the broadcast Shanahan now 0 and 37 career record when trailing by eight or more points in the fourth quarter so at any point it's just eight point. or more now the reason you with your the reason that that's important is since he took over in 2017, the 49ers are the only NFL team to have not managed one of those wins. So Shanahan is 0-37, and the 49ers are the only team in football to have failed to achieve that. That's significant. They cannot come back from double digits down. Most, most every other team has won once. Right, in those which situations. is one more than Shanahan has ever won. It's still like with be, seven, with worse teams. It's 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 overblown. He has lost 30, 38 now consecutive times, whilst trailing eight more eight or more points in the fourth quarter. That's ridiculous. Everybody should stumble into one every now and again, and certainly when you have a team as explosive yeah, and that as the 49ers. doesn't mean that they can't. Like they're not worse. If if the other team has one, if the other teams are one in fifty, and but they're he's not zero and thirty eight, but they're not. A most lot of them teams, are one in fifty. They're, they're not, one in forty-five. They have lower most other teams, except teams that have Brady or Mahomes. And most the other teams, Kirk Cousins, couple wins. 
a lot of other teams have lower numbers. Like they're not trailing that much in the fourth quarter. Like the number. You so look maybe at the, that's the bigger issue. Also, in 2017, they were terrible, and in 2018, I'm sorry, I'm not. Um, yeah, 17, they were terrible. And then the Jimmy Garoppolo showed up, and they were good. At 18, Garoppolo got hurt. They were terrible. 20, they were bad, right? They've been bad many years of Shanahan's career. Uh, when, he, when Shanahan hasn't had his quarterback, they have not been a good team, and they've been wrecked a lot. So there's just more context around this. I don't think that's like the thing. Oh, don't be, you know, it can't be down eight in the fourth. You'll never win. Like most teams, like seven teams win 7% of the time as it is. I think it's definitely an issue that this team does not, has the, not. The issue is not that when the win probability for the NFL is 93, uh, the, the, win pro, the win probability is 7% for the entire NFL. And you're saying when you're in that situation, you're 0%. And that's the Achilles heel of the 49ers. Like, we're just focusing on the wrong stuff. I don't think we are. I think we are focusing on what we've been saying for a while, that when this team gets put in a disadvantageous position, they are disproportionately affected relative to other teams. And that is going to happen more often against the best teams in the playoffs. This team has demonstrated a consistent inability to come back when down. And whether it's the fourth quarter by eight points in the final, whatever, or whether it's simply... If a team puts you in a double-digit deficit in the game, you don't come back. Other teams can do that. The Chiefs were like double-digit down for all of their games in their first Super Bowl run, and it didn't matter at all. They just came back immediately. Um, the 49ers can't do that. You're very specifically also talking about the fourth quarter. Were the Browns up? I'm talking about that specifically for that one I mean, the stat. But this team does not come back from being two touchdowns down. Is the Browns game one of those? No. They're only down three. Forget it. Um, anyway, um, I've got more other stuff to vent about. Okay. More so the um, <laughs> the MVP discourse is just obnoxious. All of it. It's just worse than ever in one of these games. The what? The MVP? Yeah. It was just, it's just too much, man. It's just too much. Every time, like Brock Purdy, like the batted pass interception. Like, let's discuss Brock Purdy's interceptions. Okay. I think he's going to finish with two turn of worthy plays and four interceptions. Um, the first interception was terrible. Misread in the end zone, takes potential points off the board. That was bad. Really bad play. Um, nice play by Cal Hamilton. By the way, at all of this, every time I'm talking about Purdy, I want you to just hear, if you're a Ravens fan, hear the credit I'm giving the Ravens. They, they played great. And I think that was. That was a big part of it. Their defense and just the all-around team effort that the Ravens put together is like the story here yeah, for I, me. Yeah, I found this game very difficult to figure out, like, how much do you credit Baltimore versus how much was this a 49ers meltdown? Like, the the first interception was really bad. That was just a misread in coverage, I think. Um, they then... You have to credit Baltimore for making plays. Like, Kyle Hamilton made a bunch of plays, and, man, he looked like he got hurt bad again. This this he was, was at least walking. I this was also not. another one of those games where it, it became one of those really irritating attritional games where late on it's like everyone that goes down is a key player on one side or other. Like this is the annoying. Niners had five offensive linemen healthy. They literally yeah, yeah ran out of offensive linemen. So that and that by the way is part of this thing at the end. Like were they able to come back? No. Were they? Did they have a functional offensive line? Also no. Um, so like they made plays on defense. On the other hand, they were kind of. You can't say they're fluky plays, but, you know, they're 
they were the type of plays that just happen sometimes, and I don't know that that's necessarily indicative of dominance versus just the way the game goes sometimes, the bounce of a ball. Um, so, like, I think there's, I don't know, I, I just, I'm, I'm not sure how much of that credit versus blame is. This was a dominant Ravens performance. They were incredible. They, you know, they showed that the five and a half point line was disrespectful, blah, blah, blah. And how much of this is like the 49ers just had one of those games. It was a total disaster. So there's there's, there's a reason why there's truth in all of that, right? So the – I want to go through Purdy's interceptions. End zone one, bad yeah. to Kyle Hamilton. Um, the batted pass one, he cancels a run play, right? It's a called run play. He pulls it out, and the read was uh, throw the slant or whatever, throw behind. And they got caught in a corner blitz. There's this element where the quarterback should be able to see the corner blitz and then try to get the ball around him, but you're also, it's like an RPO situation, so you can't double pump. So he tries to throw it through him. It gets tipped up. And like I always say, a batted pass gets intercepted about 2 or 3% of the time. Okay? So if you say the decision to try to throw the ball through the defender was a bad one, fine. The result of that decision, 97% of the time, is an incomplete pass. In this game, as you mentioned, it got batted over Purdy's head for a pick. Okay, so that's one of the interceptions. The second, uh, the third interception in the first half, my biggest, uh, Purdy's running around scrambling, mm-hmm. and he throws the ball late. The two things, this is where I think the Ravens deserve credit. If we're going to sit here and say, man, the Niners scheme it up, and there's open guys left and right, the Ravens are causing more of these types of plays, right? Where, okay, there's nobody open, either right off the read, first read or on the scramble drill. Very impressive job by the Ravens. Sticky coverage. My biggest issue with Purdy on this play is we're all watching at home and there's a fly, there's a holding call, a flag thrown. The flag gets thrown like right by Purdy's vision. And I most of the time, I don't think QBs can tell if there's a flag thrown. But when you're scrambling around that much and you're running for your life, you should have this, you should know it's probably on the offense. It's probably on us. It's going to be a holding call. And I'm sitting there the whole time thinking, just throw it away because you're going to exe- exert all this energy to try to make a big play and it's going to get negated because of the penalty and you should know it and you should have seen the flag because it went right by your face and he scrambles and he scrambles and he scrambles and he throws a pass that again it's like snug coverage it gets tipped that thing falls incomplete 97 percent of the time and it should have just been a 10-yard holding penalty instead it gets tipped up and it's picked again so to me the worst decision was just extending the play and trying to do something with it but again the result of it was unlucky. And then the third interception, he has his arm hit and the ball pops up. It was blindside pressure from the right tackle. Tough to feel. He's thrown in rhythm and he gets hit. Three of the interceptions were like kind of bad decisions. Two of them were bad decisions, but not turnover worthy decisions, right. right? They fall incomplete most of the time, but it ended up as four actual picks for Purdy. Yeah. I mean, if he saw the flag, then yeah, that play is bad. If he, and if he didn't, and he's looking like, downfield in the general yeah. direction that the flag skits by him towards the, the floor. I'm not sure he did. But if he did, it's a bad decision. If he didn't, he's trying to make a play, and this is the play that Brock Purdy has been making all the way through the season, and it's just a slightly inaccurate ball. Like, he actually has that throw open, and it leaves a, a little bit too far towards the DB's leverage. And if he puts it a yard further in, Kittle has a catch, and it's a conversion on third and five, albeit one that's about to be negated. Um, instead, again... It ends up being contested, tipped, and then just drops into the hands of Kyle Hamilton. Again, like 
that's a disproportionately negative result from a play that usually doesn't go that way. So that's what I mean by everything just went wrong for the 49ers in this game. Like, you had a bad Brock Purdy interception. Okay, cool. But then you had multiple other turnovers that just manifested from routine yeah. plays. Yeah, again, I'm, I'm not saying I'm, – I'm trying to have a nuanced take here on a Tuesday morning Can't when the I, shouty shows will not. Can't do that. I'm trying to have a nuanced take here. From the perspective of – so first off, did Brock Purdy play a good football game? I don't think so. I don't think he played very well. Did he play a football game that deserved to be four interceptions – was four interception worthy? No, he did not play that bad of a football game. Um, did, in the MVP discourse, should you see a batted pass in the second quarter of a game that gets tipped for an interception and then declare, nope, he's not my MVP. There was just a batted pass. He's got two picks in his last five throws. He must not be that good. Everything I told you is true. System guy. He's never played that. He, I mean, people are responding like, well, he was never that good. He never played that well. He just threw a batted pass interception. Throw it all out. If you're a, um, if you're you know in the MVP discourse and you're like, Purdy's stats are out of this world. If you're a Purdy stats guy, if that's your reasoning for him being MVP, a lot of people are spitting stats. Nine yards per attempt. Nobody's at passer rating. EPA. If you're a Purdy stat guy and that's your case for MVP, then he's still your MVP. Shouldn't change. He's still the most productive quarterback in the NFL by a mile. It's not even close. <laughs> So if you're if you're an MB, if you're a stat guy, then that should be it. He's, he's still your guy. He still had eight yards per attempt in this game. Still had eight yards per attempt. Now again, I'm not a stat guy because I know like the George Kittle play, they 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 go to a bunch and George Kittle's just sitting. It's just like throwing into an ocean. As great as the Ravens' defense is, they still schemed up some wide open plays. There's a check down to Debo Samuel where he's got to run through five guys and he does it. I mean, they're incredible. The Niners, all of their playmakers. Which, again, is why I think the Ravens deserve all this credit. Yeah, like, I mean, so to me, the area to give Baltimore's credit, Baltimore credit is actually less on the defensive side of the ball and more on what they did on offense. Because, like, the reason the 49ers have been so amazing is, yeah, all the focus goes on Kyle Shanahan and Brock Purdy and the offense and everything they bring to the table, but their defense is really good as well. And, okay, they were given some, some advantageous positions and short fields and stuff, but... Baltimore's offense did a really good job against this 49ers defense. They put those guys into some tough spots. They got yards after the catch and contact. They kept a really, really good pass rush relatively quiet um, throughout the course of the game. I mean, Nick Bosa made a couple of plays, but not much. Like, yeah. that's not, that was not a good Nick Bosa game. It wasn't a good game for pretty much anybody on that defensive front. You know, Chase Young had a couple of opportunities, didn't manage to get Lamar on the ground. Every time he didn't get him on the ground, Lamar turned it into a big play. So I think that's the area of this where you look and say, okay, Baltimore's offense was really good in this game against a high-level defense. And then it turned into like a comfortable landslide victory because – the 49ers offense managed to have a bunch of turnovers. I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the Ravens offense, we've been saying it all year too. Like it, they're so tough to defend because they'll come at you with finesse, speed, quickness, power. They they attack you with everything. Um, and so Lamar Jackson's the leader in the clubhouse for the MVP now. Right. And and again, let me just I'm gonna say the other side of it. When people look at Lamar's production, it doesn't look MVP worthy. But the challenge is trying to quantify this thing. 
when you need uh, it's it is breaking free from sacks. It is making big plays at the right time. It's also I think I think Lamar's EPA. We'll just say it. His production's not great because he has a lot of play. He just like runs the ball for three yards sometimes just to do it instead of throwing it away or instead of whatever. He just runs for three yards in garbage in, in run the clock type of situations. He'll take it for three. He'll take it for five. But man, when he was just weaving through the defense on that scramble, when you're playing this Ravens offense, how many times as a defense are you getting demoralized and in different ways? You can't. It's either you can't tackle um, Lamar in open space, or they're just running it right downhill, and Gus Edwards is, is at the second level, or it's Zay Flowers after the catch, or Zay getting behind the defense. Whatever it might be, Isaiah likely wide open up the seam. They just have so many different ways to beat you up, and it's not a whole bunch of like, I don't know, man. It's t- it's not like the old explosive high end Rams or Chiefs offenses or Patriots offenses or whatever. It's just whole bunch of jabs and jabs and it's just it's just beating you down right and like am I describing this right you're just beat down and by the end of it the Ravens score on seven straight drives and they weren't great in the red zone and they 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 left some points on the table but you just don't have answers for what the Ravens have offensively well, they they have too many ways of winning like that's the thing that's that's one of those things that that, that um, typifies all great offenses or all great team sides of the ball like you have a bunch of plays. So their first touchdown, right? Lamar gets out of a muddy pocket, finds help, um, and ends up making a, a sort of off-structure um, off play to Nelson Aguilar in the end zone, right? Like Aguilar and him both make the same adjustment, touchdown. So that's like not in the script, not yeah. in the, the play call. It's just Lamar making some plays and then a receiver of his being on the same wavelength that ends up in a touchdown. The second touchdown, though, is like a masterful play call where they – they're in, they're in the red zone. It's like first and 10, first and goal at the nine, whatever it was. And they run this like fake pitch from this weird formation where Ronnie Stanley was at right tackle, but outside the tight end who was slightly inside him and then a tight end on the left side. So it basically looks like a weird formation to get to an outside zone pitch play, right? Which they run, like they run a lot of that pin pull outside zone type of stuff from this type of formation. Playmaking center. So they they fake the pitch to Gus Edwards, and instead the whole thing has been just a bait and switch so that a tight end can walk down the seam completely untouched, like into the end zone. So all both the linebackers, Fred Warner sees it first and at least backs up. Dre Greenlaw is still like running in the direction of the fake that isn't being done, whilst like the tight end is waving in the back of the end zone. Lamar's throwing the ball over his head. I mean that is sorry, it's a Day Flowers, um, but that's just masterful play call so you've got if you're a defense on any given play Lamar Jackson can just go and be Lamar Jackson and we can't stop that also we have to factor in the fact that Todd Munkin is a really good uh, offensive play caller offensive play designer and we have to deal with that as well and if both those happen at the same time we've got to deal with all of it yeah I mean so I'm trying I want to give I'm trying to give Lamar credit the right way, right? You know, it, I don't like in 2019 when he won MVP, the production was out of this world. He was like eight percent of his passes went for touchdowns. It was insane. He's he's not even close to that level of production right now. But we've seen Lamar Jackson for multiple years. He is the driver for this team in the offense. He, I think, he does open up the run game for others. Yeah, and I think they've also expanded the run game, and he is the driver for all of this because everything that you mentioned, right? He can win within the pocket. He's going to win in the scramble drill. He's going to win as a scrambler, as a designed runner, 
and you have to be able to account for all of that. And I think a lot of his running back production is because you have to account for Lamar Jackson, right? He is winning the math. And when the Ravens are winning games, there's no team. Now, I know the Ravens have blown some fourth quarter leads. They've had some rough ones the last couple of years. But they have to be the most difficult team to stop with a lead because it's just, hey, when it's third and four, he's going to get five, right? They're going to do just enough. And that's that's why they've won so many games, seventy, well, whatever, 75% of their games or whatever, and Lamar's been the starter. So I think he deserves credit for all of that. And it doesn't always even show up in the production. Yeah, I, I think the Ravens offense showed that they are worthy of being one of the best teams in the NFL. Um, I think their defense played well, but it's difficult to figure out how much credit from this particular game their defense deserves versus how much of it was just, you know, the 49ers melting down slash the lucky bounce of a ball yeah. a few times. I don't know the answer to that. But I'm actually, like, part of me is sort of a bit annoyed or sad that this game wasn't a bit more normal from that side of the ball because if, like, that would have been an interesting game. Baltimore's offense playing the way it did against San Francisco's defense, and then the 49ers' offense just not melting down or having a bunch of turnovers, and we actually get to see almost like an even battle back and forth. Yeah, and again, and even kill Steve here again. I know the chat's, like, upset that I'm not, you know, taking a side here. But the last two, the last two Purdy interceptions again, um, when when he gets his arm hit on the second half one, good job by the Ravens, great pass rush. To, but the the fact that the ball ended up as a pick doesn't happen every single time. Sometimes it falls incomplete. Most of the time it falls incomplete. Right? There are three interceptions that normally fall incomplete, and that's why I want to see this rematch. That's why I want to see them in the Super Bowl, because the Ravens defense could play their same exact game, which was very good. Right? Because the biggest thing they did is not give up as many big plays at the same time they still kind of did give up a lot of yards right so the other thing but the, about, if the ball doesn't bounce to them three times it's a much closer game and the reason i keep saying like it it felt a little fluky and a little lucky is that, like that just some weird things kept happening so you can look at that play the, the last one where he gets his arm hit and you're like well Purdy's got to feel that coming like that's bad pocket presence that's bad Brock Purdy that resulted in a pick right because he's looking that way when he starts the play and when you look at what happens is he turns away from that right at the moment that that McKivitz gets whooped right yeah. so when he's looking in you that have direction to expect him to make the block when yeah. he's looking in that direction his guy has that well under control all he can see is tackle right he doesn't even see you know tackle and then there's a pass rusher the literally the exact moment that he then turns to the other side, like completely across the field for a different read, is when McKibbitts gets owned to the inside. And now where he thought there was a like a blocker between him and a pass rusher is now just a 300-pound, 330-pound man running in his direction at full speed and doesn't have a shot. So his arm just gets hit. Like, that's what I'm talking about. That type of freaky timing is weird and fluky and happened multiple times in this game that tends not to happen in other situations Ravens defense has been outstanding this year as you've mentioned before they're they're setting records or whatever it might be they're, yeah they're up game them and the Browns looking great right um but I also think there was there were some plays that went their way last night which is sure. which is interesting um one last thing here Purdy uh leaves the game with a stinger mm -hmm. for the second straight week um, so that's the one other thing I haven't heard. Let me just get ahead of it. No, Purdy wasn't benched last night because right. he was cleared to come back in, but they were down 14, and Sam Darnold had completed a couple passes. Mm -hmm. So Kyle Shanahan said, yeah, we're going to roll with Sam Darnold. 
for health purposes only. Right. Because it was a long shot to win anyway. So Brock Purdy did not get benched because he threw four picks, just in Shan- case anybody's going to run with that. Shanahan knows his own stats. He knew they weren't coming back. Yeah, Shanahan knew. We're, we're owing a million, so. We're owing 37. Sam, I'm, I'm fixing to make it owing 38. Sit yourself down. It's not a problem. Um, so the, if there's discourse about the MVP candidate getting benched, just make sure. That you know no, that's, that's ridiculous. But like, so Purdy gets a stinger, aggravated one that he had last week. Trent Williams goes down with what was a groin injury, I think it was termed, which, yeah. I mean, that doesn't sound great. Um, we had Kyle Hamilton go down with a knee injury. Again, an aggravated one from previously, but that looked bad. Yeah. Jalen Moore was also injured for the – so at one point the Niners were down to their last five offensive right. linemen. They literally – if they had any more injuries, they would have been starting a tight end. Yeah. Like Kittle would have been like left Kittle tackle. would have been playing tackle. Right. Probably. Um, so, yeah, it was a – it was a mess. Um, I, again, I'm, I'm just trying to – just trying to add some nuance to the discussion here, Sam. Nobody wants to hear it. Um, I think the best thing the Ravens did wasn't necessarily the interceptions, but the fact that, like, down for down they just played – they played good ball. And then because when you, when you do that, you put yourself into position to make those plays. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how I would view it from the Ravens' perspective. If they do that again, they might give up more points. They might have fewer turnovers, but it'll still be like an impressive effort against this Niners' offense. Yeah. Especially I mean, the way the Niners' offense has been right. cooking. I don't think – like, Purdy didn't play well. In fact, he played pretty badly, certainly relative to his performances. Yeah. But they just had – in addition to him playing badly, they had a bunch of weird plays go against them. And that's why it's a – you know, two-score deficit as opposed to maybe they could have overcome that and still won a game. All right. So that's it, man. That was it. 15 games we discussed. It's all week 16. Finished on Christmas night. It's setting up for a pretty intense New Year's Eve next week. Next week, there's going to be 10 games in the 1 o'clock slot. Um, There's a Saturday night game, just one next week. There's no Monday night football because it's New Year's Day. And we've got college football to watch that day, college football playoff to watch that day. So um, we're setting up for a great New Year's Eve. I get my body clock says this is it. My body clock is still saying week 16 is all I can handle, or 17. One more full slate, and they're going to they're make me go an extra week again. Yeah, like my body's still used to the 17. You're not week. used to uh, to the 16, to no. the 17 game schedule. I'm done. Like I'm, I might skip week 18. Hmm. Still boycotting the new schedule here. Yeah, but um, yeah, point it's of principle. Fun. Um, so like I said five hours ago, next Tuesday, 9 a.m. That's where we'll be. Yep. Anything else? No, I think we're done. All right, great. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll see you again tomorrow, I guess, with more PFF NFL podcast.